This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Monday morning to you. How you doing? You having a good start today? This is the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your coach, Dr. Matt. Your guide on the side. See if we can't get your Monday morning going. Oh, Kickstart it. It's a hard thing. Today, uh, boy, have we got great news for you. This is just in. Terry, my, my great producer, found this. And this is, this is life-changing. So listen up, everybody. The art of the urban nap. It's happening. Uh, we've got to lose the stigma of public sleeping. A lot of people get down on you if you start sleeping, you like mid-sentence. They get mad. They're like offended. But the Japanese have a practice. It's called inamuri, inamuri. And it's something that uh, we as Westerners, we need to embrace this. This is where we go to Japan. We pick up some great new ideas, some technology. It should be inamuri by Sony. But what it basically means, literally translated, Inumeri means being present while sleeping. And I'm going to start a new Inumeri practice here at BYU Broadcasting. It's where you go to sleep in front of people while you're meant to be doing something else. But So I'm supposed to be in a meeting with you, talking with you. But instead, I might fall asleep while you're talking to me. And I mean no offense. See, that's the problem. You Westerners, you're all offended by my sleeping. And really, it's not a shameful thing. What it means is I'm working so hard on the job, I need to sleep while you're talking to me. I spend so much time here that I need to sleep. It's not shameful. Only in the West would they find sleeping on the job shameful. In the East, it's an honor. It's a great tradition. I'm not sleeping because I'm lazy. I'm sleeping because I'm working so hard for our company. (laughs) <laughs> Inu Murray, this is the new thing. This is what I'm starting. I, whether you anybody else is on board, whatever, but everybody needs to know what I'm doing. When I fall asleep while you're talking to me, it, it doesn't mean that I'm not dedicated. It means I am so dedicated to my work that in, moment, in moments I will be exhausted by it because I've worked so hard. And if I carry it out correctly, it's an honorable kind of it's a minor failure. I mean it's a it's it's a failure, but it's a minor one because I'm giving my all. So, let's have a revolt. Today on the Matt Townsend show, we're starting a new Inumuri revolt. It's okay to sleep in front of people. There are some rules. I want I want you to know there's some rules. You can't just go sleeping anytime you want. One of them breaks a long-term tradition of mine. If you are new to a company, you cannot sleep in front of anybody. You got to earn this right, right? You have to show how active you are. So you've got to be in the company, show you're active. And then, you know, after a little while, you can start sleeping in front of people. If you are 40 to 50 years old and the meeting does not directly relate to you, then you can sleep. These are great rules. And I'm 40 to 50, so I fit right there. So any meeting that doesn't relate to me directly, nine-nine, I'm taking a break. The higher up the social ladder you go, the more sleep you can have. 
So, you know, when you're the boss, that's why Don sleeps through everything we do. That and other reasons. <laughs> Hope he's listening. Uh, what is honorable is to fall asleep despite your best efforts. So if you're going to do this, you have to make sure you look like you're struggling. <laughs> Don't just like go nigh-nigh. Your body needs to pretend that you are active in the meeting. Like sit up straight if you can, like you're concentrating. You know, shake your head a little bit. Even close your eyes, but shake your head. You cannot sleep under the table. This is the rule I've been violating, and this is what Terry South bolded in the article. You cannot sleep under the table. Bah! You have to sit as if you are actually listening intently. Just put your head down. I like to put my hand on my chin so it looks like I'm pensive and thinking. Inu Murray, folks. Brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show. Let's start practicing it. I'd love to hear your stories of where you pulled off a little Inu Murray. Just tweet us, at Dr. Matt Show. I want to hear how successful you are at pulling off the public sleep. I love watching, like my at church, I love watching the leaders of the congregation up front just doing everything they can to stay awake. It's a pretty powerful thing. You, By the way, in Inu Murray, you're allowed to sleep as much as you need because this is a need thing. You need it. You don't want this, but you're giving so much to the company, to the cause. You just need a little nap now and then. (sighs) Game on. Top of the Monday to you. Now you have the tool to sleep when you need to. Inu Murray. It's catching on, folks. Share it with your friends, your family. Start practicing it and then send us your, your, your top lessons. If you get fired... Uh, don't mention it on the Twitter line, the Twitter feed. Just keep that to yourself. At Dr. Matt Show. But first, something you will never sleep through. Our headlines with Kathy Aiken. Kathy. And this time, don't sleep under the table, Matt, when I'm giving the news. That's I'd right. appreciate it. Thank you. Add one more name to the GOP presidential race. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker made his announcement in a video this morning saying he's running for president. He called for a new, fresh leadership with big, bold ideas from outside Washington. According to the latest Real Clear Politics poll, Walker leads in Iowa, which holds the first caucus. His 17.8% nearly doubles that of Jeb Bush and Rand Paul, who are tied for second. Walker is the 15th GOP presidential contender. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, also a GOP presidential hopeful, continues to get piled on after his controversial remarks on immigration. One of his competitors, Senator Lindsey Graham, said Trump's ideas will lose. For us to win a national election, we have to do better with Hispanics. And for us to have the moral authority as a party to govern a great nation, we have to reject this demagoguery. But if we don't, we will lose and we will deserve to lose. But just- On the Democratic side, presidential frontrunner Hillary Clinton is expected to lay out her economic plan for the nation today. Clinton campaign officials won't say if she'll be calling for tax increases. Rather, rather she'll urge companies to expand profit sharing and discuss an economic agenda focused on the middle class. She'll also point to economic progress during her husband's two terms in the 90s. Clinton's speech will take place at the New York School in New York City. The Midwest is bracing for severe storms today. Nearly 50 million people from Wisconsin to Ohio. Ohio and Kentucky face threats of damaging winds, heavy rains, even possible tornadoes. Aaron Cromer, a Buffalo Bills offensive line coach, was booked for misdemeanor battery charge after police alleged he pushed a boy to the ground, punched him in the face, and told him he'd kill his family if he went to the police. Cromer allegedly confronted three boys at a Florida beach over the use of beach chairs. Cromer is in his first season with the NFL team. Jordan Spieth beat Tom Gillis on the second hole of the playoff to win the John Deere Golf Classic yesterday. 
Bay. That's his fourth victory of the year. Spieth now heads to this week's British Open as the favorite in search of his third major championship. And at Wimbledon yesterday, Novak Djokovic beat Roger Federer in four sets. That's his third title on the grass court, the second straight against Federer. I was coming into the tournament as everybody else trying to fight for the trophy and to be able to stand here now in front of you and holding it, it's a, it's a dream come true again. Even though I won it for the third time, uh, every time it feels like first. After the win, Djokovic did what he's done twice before, Matt. He ate the grass on the center court. Ooh. Yes, but he said he was assured it was gluten-free, not <laughs> processed, and completely organic and natural. Yeah. And I know you do that when you do I love your yard. It. Once, as uh-huh. soon as you're done, you take a couple of blades, yeah. put it in your mouth. A couple. And <laughs> I take a handful. <laughs> just chew that thing down. <laughs> Those when greens I, yeah. are good for you. I like it when I weed my garden. I like to just grab a big handful of weeds. Mm-hmm. Chomp my, down. It's pretty gross. It is gross. But, man, that was, did you see Serena? Yes. She's amazing. She is amazing. She is the best woman. I would love if I, to me, Steffi Graf was one of the best that I ever watched. She's about to pass her, isn't she? Yes. And I would have, I'd love to see those two play in their prime. It'd oh, wouldn't be that be great? to see who would win. Yeah. Uh, I think Serena's got a maybe a bigger grunt noise, doesn't she? You know what? I am the biggest tennis fan, but I really have a hard time watching the women because of because the of grunting. It yeah. is, it's not watchable. Do you know that I've actually. You have to mute it. Well, I, but you know, it helps. Do you, do you play tennis? I love tennis, yes, but I don't grunt. Well, uh, like, have you ever like just? I use the grunt to just get out of my chair. <laughs> I have noticed you know that. Yes. I mean? Have you noticed that? But there's something about it that visceral. Like just, oh, it just helps just kind you of feel better, right? pull you, you right the, out of the chair. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Do you use that when you weed though? Uh-huh. Do okay. I do just when I have to squat to get down to the ground. <laughs> but when I get back up, huh, yeah, you, yeah. It just makes you feel better. It does, and you know what else? It keeps a lot of people away. That because would. they're they're a little embarrassed. You know the thing is, though, I thought they the women's game. I thought they made a rule you can't do yeah. it anymore, but they keep doing it. It just drives me crazy. Well, I, it's isn't it involuntary? I think they do it to bug the other player. They I, might, I maybe they I, do. Either that, or if it's just kind of their their ritual. I don't know, but it drives you crazy. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I, have if, to, I can't watch. Where it. else could you get away with a grunt noise? You know what I mean? What other what Only other if thing? You had ADD in the workplace or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. You would almost have to have like Tourette's because. <laughs> It's kind of offensive. It is. Man, Stacy sure grunts oh. a lot. Sharapova is one of the worst. You know, when they yep. played in the semi, it's like, I oh, can't watch it. No. Because I have, you have to have the volume up, but, you know, I just, the, it drives me nuts. It's funny, too. After you win, then you have all this royalty stuff you've got to do and uh-huh. qu- kiss the Duke of York <laughs> or whoever it is. But it's it, it's just, it's got to be so strange for an American to be there and play all of that. I've been to Wimbledon and seen Have the court. You? I've That's never seen the games. List. It was empty. Oh. We just showed up one day. But it's a beautiful place. I don't know. That's on my bucket list. The grunting. Is it on your bucket list? I would love it. I I took my oldest boy to the U.S. Open about 10 years ago. Mm. I could have stayed there all week. Oh, that would be cool. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Flushing Meadows. We went to see Serena play, watched Uh Nadal. Really? Um, And I can't remember who won that year, but we watched the female that won that year. But yeah, it was was a great event. I I need a bucket list. Yeah. I don't have a big. Mine's not very long. Yeah, mine isn't. Yet. Yeah, mine's like non-existent. But <laughs> I am so going to start you're grunting more, and I'm going to start in Newmarie, <laughs> where I sleep more. In Appreciate front of you staying. Awake, I didn't though. even sleep at all. That was good. That. I, that was I, fantastic. I noticed your eyes were open. Well, it's because you don't you know are. if you were asleep, but they were. Well, open. I am learning to sleep with my eyes open. <laughs> That's what I was afraid of. But <laughs> the problem is they dry out very fast. Well done, well done, Kathy Aiken. Hey, uh, great show today. Joe Cannon will be joining us. Remember, uh, we want to give you the tools, the ideas you need. Joe is our Washington insider. We just like to pick his brain. All things politics 
Up next, stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Stick with us. back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. In the house, Joe Cannon joins us. Joe is our Washington insider. Uh, he is was a candidate once for U.S. Senate back in 1992, served as an assistant administrator to the U.S. EPA agency, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, under the Reagan administration, was also an editor of Deseret News, um, uh, which is kind of an intermountain, major intermountain newspaper. But he's in the know. He knows the people we need to know, and so he's here to answer the questions that we all have about politics. Joe, welcome to the show again. Hey, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Our Washington insider wearing his Dodgers cap. You bet. It's the all-star break, and the Dodgers are in first place in their division. Are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yep. They're back. Four and a half. Well, they do well until they get into the playoffs the last few years. (laughs) And then it falls apart on them. And then San Francisco wipes us out. I didn't realize you were such a big fan. Of the Dodgers. Okay, all things politics. One thing we've got to get to, because it seems to be just kind of like nails on the chalkboard. Uh, Donald Trump, what is the deal? Because he is, he's coming in like wildfire. He's getting some pretty good, you know, what are they, polls? He's, he's, he's looking good, but he drives everybody crazy. He, I guess he's looking good in some polls in some places. Yeah, I guess uh, Iowa, I mean, New Hampshire. Will he actually get delegates? Uh, will he, you know, sustain it? I don't know. It's hard, hard for me <sighs> to think. The, I mean, the guy is really, you know, he's, you know, how much hubris the guy has oh, yeah, when yeah. he, when he cannot do anything about that stupid hair. Yeah, it's just like embarrassing to start out. <laughs> in fact, but, did you hear that? Now they're trying to find his hairdresser and see if they can flip him and get the inside scoop on the hair. <laughs> Well, I don't know if it's a toupee or not. It doesn't matter. I yeah. mean, even, even if it is, you could get you could do better than that. But I, I mean, that's a, it's a small thing. But yeah, it just shows his arrogance. Everyone knows it looks stupid. He yeah. goes, "So what? I'm, Don, I'm the Donald. I can yeah. do whatever I want." Including, by the way, filed bankruptcy four times for his company. This is the guy yeah. that yeah, we, and, the guy's going to solve all our economic problems. And maybe that's his plan. Well, well, maybe and maybe take, take us into chapter eleven and and also talk about. What he says about immigration, he has completely offended the Hispanic vote. I mean, how on earth is are the Republicans ever going to to woo and to bring the Hispanic vote along by offending all of them? Well, I mean, they're rapists, except for a few that aren't. Yeah, it's crazy. He's he's a loudmouth. He's uh, this is well, clearly egomaniacal, mm-hmm. an egomaniacal guy. Now. He, he might actually think he can win. I mean, he, uh, Winston Churchill once said, never underestimate your enemies because however insane they may appear, they have some belief in them somewhere that they can beat you. Yeah, yeah. And so Trump thinks that. And, and he gets a lot of adulation from a very narrow band of people who uh, – Feel like he does about uh, immigrants. Well, he fires people. He's he was on he's on The Apprentice. Well, <laughs> I think he's about to get fired himself. Yeah. He, he 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 will not have legs. It, it, let me play you this clip because to me, this is the number one reason 
he can't he can't he can't survive that there are for immigrants on the whole create come on try getting it out Try getting it out. I'll get it out. I mean, I don't know if you're going to put this on television, but you don't even know what you're talking about. Try getting it out. Go ahead. This is an NBC reporter trying to ask him a question about immigration. And she's just trying to get the language right so it doesn't sound stupid. And she's trying to say it, and he just bullies her for minute after minute. He just keeps bullying her. Yeah. Yeah, this is a prescription for a guy who can be a real— leader in our country don't you think yeah he's, he's bullying just, uh, everybody just yeah bullying and i'm the smartest guy in the room and he's not that smart this guy inherited like two hundred seventy thousand apartments in in new york <laughs> that city was this is start. not this is not the log cabin kind of a guy yeah. and managed over the years at least four times to take his companies to bankruptcy not not endangering himself but saying i'm you know i'm just going to put a lot of other money, people's money at risk and so what if I fail? I will just we'll just blow him out in 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 chapter eleven. So who likes Donald Trump? Well, I think there's there's an element every every place. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, somebody's pushing on the press. They got to like that. So certain people like that he's taking on the press. They he's a loudmouth, and plenty of people hate the press. And there still are plenty of people who uh, feel the way he does about immigration. And so that's a, there's that strain that he's. Um, you know, tapping into yeah, which he, is really yeah, he's bad. Playing that. Yeah, so and that's a that's a it's bad, but I, I don't think he has the legs to actually get the nomination. The what I kind of worry about is um, a third party candidacy. Yeah, so he spins arrogant. off, and if he just takes a little bit, I mean. Uh, George Bush arguably is president because of Ralph Nader, uh-huh. who only got a tiny fraction of the vote, but it was enough in, in at least one state to to Turn throw it deal. to Bush. Uh, Bill Clinton would never have been president. Now, Bill Clinton never got more than 50 percent of the vote in either of his two presidential elections. And the, in the first election, though, he he, uh, he was elected by Ross Perot. That's right. Uh, who got significantly more than Ralph Nader. Uh, so yeah, so a Trump candidacy could but, do, could do, could uh, so that might could elect be, Hillary because they're tiptoeing around him. A lot of them are tiptoeing and, and dancing around him. No one, very few of the candidates are actually coming out again. They are now. They're starting. Well, to Lindsey Graham throw, I think came yeah. out. Uh, I think. Well, Jeb Bush. The, they're starting to throw yeah. some punches because they, but they were all kind of back on their heels, and it almost seems like they were afraid of him. They didn't want to. They didn't want to have a sparring contest right. with him. I think they wish they would go away. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's is. Uh, well, Hillary's got to be loving this. This is a dream for, like I say, her husband became president because of a, a guy, not nearly as much of a buffoon, but kind of an odd guy who had a mm-hmm. lot of money. And decided, you know, I can run for president. And if if and if she could just spin him off even to the third candidate, she's Perfect. in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she knows that he'll never be the pre- the, right. the nominee. So her her dream is, well, he let's let's see a third party candidacy here. And she then says, you know, every that she just kind of broad brushes that see the Republicans don't like Hispanics. Right. Yeah. But I, I, all that could get righted depending on who the candidates are. Yeah. I mean, if you have a Bush Rubio ticket, if you have a Kasich Rubio ticket, if you have a Rubio Kasich ticket. Uh-huh. Uh huh. There, uh, there, there are plenty of ways that the Republican Party could appeal to uh, the Hispanic vote. Uh, what do you think of Mark Walker getting in? Scott Walker or Scott yeah, Walker yeah. getting in? Um, 
you know, I mean, he number fifteen he, of, of all of he's number fifteen, but in a certain weird way, he was always number one or yeah, two. He's always I mean, he's they, always they always, he's always been him. there. So I think it, it doesn't hurt him getting it as much as it does Kasich waiting so long, mm-hmm. just because he's always been a player and 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 a presumed front runner. He is he is probably one of the three or four plausible. Uh, potential candidates, players, huh? And and he's you know he's he's got the union busting behind him. He's been beating up the unions up in Milwaukee, which is interesting. And Hillary just got her first union, I guess, endorsement. So they like her now. Well, <laughs> with exceedingly rare defections, notably periodically the Teamsters bolt, uh, unions are solidly. There's no, Isn't that? It's no surprise at all. Politics 101. Let's take a break. We're talking with Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. We'll take a break. Be right back. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get into a bunch of other things. You know, really, what's, what do we need to worry about? What really is the political future when it comes to uh, the Republican Party and their 15 candidates? We'll be getting into more of that after this break. Stick with us. To the Matt Townsend Show. In the house is our Washington insider, Joe Cannon, joins us. Joe is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, which you can find at fuelfreedom.org, trying to lower the cost of fuel for uh, those of us here in the United States. Also was the chairman of the Utah Republican Party a few moons ago, also a candidate for U.S. Senate, but he is our Washington insider. He's in the know. He knows these people. He sits across the table from uh, all the people we talk about in politics, except Donald. He gets his hair styled at the same place Donald does. <laughs> That's why I'm wearing a hat today, <laughs> so I don't want to embarrass you. Your hat looks great, L.A. Dodgers. Uh, but talk to us, Joe, about fundraising um, – because we always get a report of the first quarter, and that's a big deal, how much money they're raising. Catch us up. Who's leading the fundraising? Well, apparently. I mean, it's very hard because everyone counts they it. throw it out there, yeah. You've got your own actual fundraising, which you have to report to the FEC. Then there are all these different committees the and then, and... that are connected to you. And then there are these independent PACs. Um, so I'm not sure – had the makeup of each of these numbers, but but Hillary's claiming forty five million, I think, first quarter. Okay, and um, um, Jeb Bush is claiming one hundred and fourteen million. Wow, um, that's a lot of moo. That's a lot of money. Ted Cruz said the other week that he's raised hit between himself and these independent PACs. He's got fifty million. No, no way to fully verify that. Um, so yeah, you've got some. I mean, th- those three, just those three. That's about two, and plus Trump, who we keep hearing is, is how self funder. He, well, self funder, and Carly Fiorina is a self funder. Yeah. Uh, I'm told that uh, that um, uh, Rubio has ten to fifteen million. But I mean, just in yeah. that, I yeah. mean, ten to fifteen million. You were just talking about some of the candidates many moons ago. Well, let me put this in perspective. Because that's crazy. Fifty-five years ago today, 
John F. Kennedy was nominated in Los Angeles, California, nominated for the presidency in 1960. A couple of weeks later, Richard Nixon was nominated in Chicago. Together, they spent less than $20 million uh, for that whole campaign. Between the two of them. Yeah, between the two of them, $20 million. And that was thought to be, and it was, the most expensive campaign in history. Unbelievable. It was, it was unbelievable. People were saying. And there was $2 billion spent, $2 billion between the two candidates yeah. last time. So no matter how much the inflation factor is added to $1960 today, oh, we're, these campaigns are moving way ahead of, uh, yeah. of uh, inflation. Is, um, so really it's about you, you got to get the money. So really, because Jeb hasn't done a lot, it seems like, except chase money. Right. I mean, but, he, he, he hasn't, you don't, it seems like he's trying to keep kind of low key, don't get sucked into the Trump wave, Yeah, make some money. Well, money is is necessary, but not sufficient. You have to have more than just money. So there have been plenty of big, rich self-funders, yeah. Trump being one, just to point another. Perot. Per, Ross Perot is another. Uh, so yeah, if you have enough money, you can you can do whatever you want. I mean, uh, Mitt Mitt started out as a self funder, yeah. pretty much. Uh, though he also raised an, an enormous amount of money. So yeah, uh, funding is is necessary but not sufficient. Uh, I I still in my bones um, can't see Bush getting there just because of yeah. the Bush fatigue. Yeah, but. Having said that, I I could easily see the pathway where he does, where it's a a Clinton Bush all over again. But you, it's interesting because we sense a bigger Bush fatigue than we sense a Clinton fatigue. Because we always talk about we don't want to go back to the past. So if, if the if the election is about Bush and Clinton, it's about going back to the past. But I guess Bush has a a more jaded past. <laughs> I don't know what polling shows on that, really. Uh, uh, I've heard plenty of people talk about Hillary being a voice from the past. People in her own party uh, talk that way. I mean, there's there's plenty of Clinton fatigue on their side, which is why, you know, Bernie Sanders is getting some traction. Yeah. There's zero chance that Bernie Sanders is going to be the presidential candidate. But there was zero chance that Gene McCarthy— was going to be the presidential candidate right. in 1968, and yet he, he either wins or does really well in New Hampshire. I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly which. And a month later, um, uh, Lyndon Johnson resigns. So hmm. uh, these these candidates that that speak to a piece of a, a segment of parties can can make a difference. Do you sense uh, what's your feeling on Biden, Joe Biden? He's I think he's like it's 13 percent. There's a lot of pe- there are a lot of people in Washington pushing him to run, and he's thinking, I don't know what he's thinking. Who knows what's yeah. in the mind of Joe Biden? <laughs> uh, he, he clearly would like to be president. I mean, he's run before, which is always a telltale sign. Um, so, what I, do you think I, about Jim Webb? Jim Webb just got in. Now he was uh, he's a big military man, wasn't he? One of the members of Jim, the Jim Webb was defense. assistant secretary uh, in the in uh, the Navy, I think, yeah. in the. Uh, Reagan administration. Uh, so I kind of like Jim Webb as a person. He's written some f- really interesting books. Right. He wrote, wrote a book called Born Fighting. He wrote a book called The Scots-Irish uh, uh, Created America. It's, I don't remember the exact title. But he's a very interesting guy, but he's uh, conservative. I mean, in a, this last week, I don't know whether this one he announced or in an in a, um, interview, uh, he said um, – 
look, this isn't the demo- my my this isn't my Democratic yeah. Party. Sort of echoing Ronald Reagan. They're moving said, too uh, far left. Yeah. Yeah, Ronald Reagan said, I, n- "I never left the Democratic Party. Democrat Party, they left me." Mm-hmm. And, and Webb is making that same kind of an argument. The problem is, the people who he thinks captured the party, he Webb thinks captured the party, yeah. happen to be the people who have their uh, hands on the dials of the uh, nomination process. That's right. So I, I don't see. Well, they'll nominate left and then move to the right. Yeah. Right. And I don't see him getting any traction in don't that. You? In that. Uh, Maybe, a, maybe maybe a, some of the southern primaries, maybe in Virginia. Oh yeah, where he's from, he's a senator from there. But it also seems like maybe he'd be a great <clears throat> vice president. I mean, just because he's simply going to pull the right center. Yeah, it could be, but I just don't see Hillary putting a guy. Jim Webb is. Uh, he's a tough. I say, it's kind of a loose cannon, if I <laughs> could say that. Uh, is he? That's one of the, one of the reasons he's an, an attractive guy, but he's just in, he's in the wrong place in in history. Is he? He's a, he's a Democrat. I yeah, mean, but I'm just saying he's in in the wrong place, wrong time for him. What um, you know, when you think about all of this that's going on, there's so much. We talked about the Supreme Court decision with gay marriage, and then Rand Paul came out like last week saying, you know, government needs to get out of it. Government needs to get out of marriage altogether. He's a little more libertarian, right? A little more like stay out of it, government. I mean, what do you think? Do you think there will be any fallout from that in this in this election? Probably not in this election. I mean, it depends on a lot of things. So right now, gay uh, same sex marriage is the is the law of the land. Um, it really depends on the next set of Supreme Court decisions where they have to uh, wrestle with the right of same-sex marriage versus the right of religious liberty yeah. of, of Christians, some Christians who would oppose that. That that decision still to be determined. If that gets determined in a way that uh, says, no, same-sex marriage trumps uh, a Christian's perceived religious liberty – then I think you'll see all kinds of things happen. Do you sense any of that will happen before the election? I don't think so. Because it takes a while for a case to get to the Supreme yeah. Court, and I'm pretty sure they don't want to decide that before the election. It but actually I'd, seems like it would be something that would be a great way to get people to the polls. I mean, get get them out to vote. You know, yeah, one I'm of the, one of those sure how issues. You tee that up. Uh, um, you know, kind of like the marijuana vote in so many states gets a lot of people, more liberal people, to vote and gets out the vote. Uh, it did, but in in Colorado, that turned out to elect Republicans. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, oh, did it? it? Well, the 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 uh, incumbent Democrat governor, pretty popular guy, uh, Hickenlooper, won, but an incumbent senator, Democrat senator, was defeated. Hmm. So, what uh, what do you feel about this upcoming uh, the Iran deal? The well, nuclear... I think I've stated on your show before. I'm 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 a very pro-Israel person. Yeah. And I don't know – look, I don't know what's in the agreement. Most yeah. people don't. I wonder if anyone does. Yeah. What I do know is if if you line up all the people who like the agreement and all the people who hate the agreement, I'm just going to say my inclination is with the people who hate the agreement. Mm. Yeah. I mean for, for Benjamin Netanyahu and and for Israel in general, this is in their view – in in my view, for its worth, rightly, a uh, an existential threat to them, and they are 
completely afraid of this deal. They they have yeah. complete fear just of the details that they know. And it seems like there's no concession that the uh, the the president and Kerry won't give give anything. Every, yeah, yeah, they, they need want, this deal. They, they really really want this deal. And um, meanwhile, the Iranians are going along, hating America, <laughs> building bombs, doing you know. But the Iranian they, people, this is the deal, though, right? The Iranian people want these sanctions lifted. So of course, that's their main yeah. objective in this. But then the the religious leaders over there, the leaders over there in Iran, need to save face and still keep a keep control right is that what we're I don't think they worry here? too much about saving face they so they're, they are in control they're, okay, in, control. they're in control um, and then and, and yet and also president obama this was always been one of his real you know gems well, I that think he wanted he, to. he genuinely believes that iran could play a positive role in middle eastern politics I, he believes that and so he believes that a deal with them will somehow bring them more into the community of countries. Um, I, don't, I don't happen to agree with that, but I, I think I'm fairly stating his view. Well, give us, give us kind of an overview of where you think President Obama is. He's, he, what, he's got a year and a half or whatever left. He's, he's pretty solid in the polls. People seem to like him. He's just – he's getting a lot of things done. I mean a lot of his – a lot of his – uh, the Supreme Court battles, he seems to be winning those. He Cuba is going to be getting an embassy soon. Uh, he, he's he, he's probably going to get some version of this Iranian deal. He is completely laser-focused, dedicated to implementing his agenda, and he's been pretty successful at it. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean really he's I, I don't he's think in he a good position right now. I don't think about the poll numbers. I mean he's actually – Still not in, still below fifty. I think I, I didn't look yeah. today, but he's still below fifty. But he, he I don't but, think he cares about the polls. It well, no, but he's but the president. He's below fifty with Obamacare basically fully legitimate now yeah, yeah. and not going anywhere. Uh, Cuba done. Iran on I don't the think way. Cuba, for what it's worth, I don't think Cuba plays out at all nationally. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think they're Florida. They're, but doesn't it show he's a diplomat? Doesn't it show that he's open minded? In the world, he's bringing people back, you know, under well, the wings. Well, that's certainly his self-perception. Yeah, that, that that's what it does. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm kind of mixed on Cuba. Yeah. I, I don't know that what he's doing makes much difference. If, you, if you're a Cuban, you're still pretty miserable. You're still driving yeah. driving a 1957 Chev, hoping that it, <laughs> uh, you can keep it going. But it'll change. Then they'll get our 70s bugs and all of our old. Cars. Maybe they will. <laughs> When it opens up, what do we need to be focusing on, Joe? What's uh, what's top of your mind? What's what are you worried well, I, about? I think what you've talked about this morning is pretty interesting. I mean, the whole campaign uh, positioning—it's uh, it, just going to be really interesting when people actually come to the polls to yeah. vote. You can take all kinds of polls you want. It's notoriously hard to poll Iowa, for example, because it's a caucus state. So. Mm-hmm. You know, you're on the ground. Machinery matters an awful lot. And so I think both parties could see some surprises. I mean, I still still think Hillary will win. Yeah. But I think that it'll be uh, – Sanders has the potential of, of, of a big surprise there. Do you think this little slow drip she does of the getting those emails out, it seems like it's kind of a 
bad PR it's bad. move. Well, I don't because it brings it up every month. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing that that's not her favorite thing. Yeah, it, well, it seems uh, like she could have changed it, couldn't she? If just by releasing them herself. Um, well, I mean, I guess the, the government had to probably too late now for that because yeah. she turned them over. Uh, I think one of the interesting, very subtext things in there is she released to the State Department hard copies of emails. Now, yeah, you could have just given the digital yeah, version. Which would have made it a lot easier for everybody. Yeah, you could have left the servers yeah, there and just yeah, handed them the servers. Yeah. So, so I think the email thing – is is going to be a, an ongoing issue for her. Well, and she's made statements that she's never been subpoenaed when she had. and But again, it just seems like it has to be vetted by the media. In fact, uh, the the, um, the historian uh, uh, Doris, Doris Kearns, Kearns Goodwin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She came out and just said, it's the job of the press to basically identify who is a legitimate candidate and who's not. Do you buy that argument? She's basically talking about Trump. It's the job of the press to to push through that and to vet that. Um, You're a press guy. I think the press's job is to report the news. I think the press's job is to uh, illuminate all of the candidates for whatever reason. The, the first you – know, you know, I, I do think the press tends to be a little lighter on mm-hmm. Hillary – uh, very few hard questions and even the few sort of tending toward hard questions provoke this sort of yeah. very strong response on her part. So, yeah, if the press did its job for everybody the same, that would be fine. But She, uh, she seems frustrated that they're, they're, they're kind of going with Donald a little too long, basically on the assumption that, well, I mean – She good he, one, yeah. yeah. She, she, he speaks his will. I mean – He's got people yeah, that from care. A, from a news, of course, to be fair, she's not strictly a journalist. I mean, yeah. she, she's, a, she's a, a historian. But uh, uh, look, if you're a newspaper, if you're a talk, if it you're sells. A, 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 a late night comedy guy, <laughs> Trump is manna from heaven. That's right. You know? He's keeping Jon Stewart alive yeah. for the last. But Six even weeks. even regular reporters, what, what do you, you you could cover a guy who, who makes buffoonish statements, who looks like a buffoon, mm-hmm. who has zero self awareness? <laughs> uh, wow, that's, that, yeah. that's every statement's. Uh, ex- I mean, they, they can't even Pinocchio him because yeah. it's uh, everything's an exaggeration. It's just it's hard, man. Well, it, it, by the way, just is what's that going to do to the rest of them? There's 15 candidates right now. One is Trump, but is he pulling down the whole party there? I mean, right now. I mean, right now, right now, he's a very big diversion. Right now, whether that becomes permanent cancer, yeah, <laughs> you know, we'll we'll find out. Oh, it's tough stuff. I mean, it's so interesting, and too, to think that we've got so much longer to go. Uh, how, yeah. For how much we're already talking about it, it's going to be a long, long battle. It is going to be a long battle, but actually, the Iowa caucuses are. You know, half Coming a year up. away, basically. It's a uh, man. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, Joe Cannon, we appreciate you. You did it again. Thanks. Thanks for having. We'll all be watching for your L.A. team, okay. the Dodgers. Hey, uh, everybody, go check out Joe's website, fuelfreedom.org. Just a great uh, resource for, uh, you know, fuel, decreasing fuel costs. Who doesn't want that? We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll come back to a little Coach's Corner up next right here on BYU Radio. 
Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's so interesting to me that these people are running to be our elected leaders, right? And a Donald Trump is just a bully. I mean, I get it. Go have a different view and go be really strong. And you cannot like the press because the press aren't pro-Republican. Um, They're always pro-Democrat. But you can't go browbeat and beat down a journalist and just try to humiliate him and, and literally bully him, which is what he did in this interview with this NBC journalist. This is still our president. Somebody else, another NBC journalist asked, so – are you? How are you going to use diplomacy? How is that going to work? How are you going to make it so you don't tick people off? And then what Joe or uh, what Donald Trump gut does is he jumps back into, well, I mean, I've made millions of dollars on China. I've made millions of dollars with Mexico. I've made millions of dollars. I know how to negotiate with these people. Yeah, right. But you can't even talk to a journalist respectfully. That's where, whatever. Let let him be the big voice of you know. Whatever. Let him be the guy that fires everybody. But don't just be rude to a journalist because they can't find the words to ask you a question on immigration. Instead, like one journalist was quoting Pew Research from a Pew poll, and he just basically trumps it by just saying, Ugh, whatever, I don't care what the research says. I know the facts are. And then he just states it as a fact. One of the rules I have when I coach uh, people on relationships, you got to be careful how you speak because when you speak as if your opinion is a fact, then you're setting yourself up to basically just inherently turn people off. The problem is Trump is turning enough people on that he keeps getting more attention. But it doesn't mean you're right. Stating an opinion as, an, as a fact does not make it right. The data doesn't support that. And so just be careful when you're listening to anybody that's just throwing it out there as a fact. He is such an idiot. By the way, the minute you use the B verb, he is so stupid. It Right there, inherently you start to believe it because, you know, you said it. You didn't say it like, you know, in my opinion, and I know that sounds squishy and weak, Except at some point, you can't just offend everyone that, you know, the Republicans hate to win the election. It doesn't work that way. At some point, we need to trust you. We need to respect your data. And also, you also can't at some point just keep quoting your own doctrine and your own stories. I mean, that's an interesting point uh, that was just brought up by Joe. For Bankruptcies? Well, sure. He's worth whatever, $3 billion, and he's had four bankruptcies. All right. Is that the leader we need? And I get it. The press aren't always fair. I can see how people say that. And yet, they're still humans, so we can still treat you with respect. We can still be decent. It's funny, too. Hillary Clinton throws a bunch of reporters in a rope line and basically corrals them and runs them through a a parade. And we don't hear a lot about that. I mean, we do a little. And the press was – they were kind of upset by it. But 
Donald Trump just beats down some reporters and we don't hear anything about that. Where are the journalists and what are they thinking? Why aren't they pointing this behavior out? And, you know, maybe it doesn't matter because are you listening? That might be another problem we all have is, is anybody listening yet to any of this? Anyway, folks, it's still a, it's still an election, but elections should still be done with principles, right? And respect, and there needs to be a respect of some sort between journalism and the pol- the political world. Journalists, you know, they used to be called the fourth branch of go- of government, right? And uh, now you just wonder. So I, as journalism is falling, politicians are falling. Oh, the tangled web. Hour number one, my friends, of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Got a great new show, uh, new topics, new ideas up next hour right here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your guide on the side. We do what we can on the show to give you the tools to uh, to have a to get a leg up, it's hard, right? It's hard to know what you need to know. There's so many news outlets out there. Everybody's giving you some version of the news. We want to help you know what to do with it. So we bring on the experts today. Interesting uh, subject coming up a little bit later today. We're going to be talking with Dr. Matthias Mausch, who is going to teach us about the evolution of pop music. He they have been doing studies on. 17,000 different songs from 1960 to 2010, and he is going to give you what the researchers have found are three major revolutions in pop music, and maybe we'll be able to predict the future revolution. Oh, it's going to be interesting. So if you love music, if you love pop music, stick with us because, uh, you know, there's obviously been different different types of music, right, from the blues to, uh, I guess, rap. But we're going to be talking about the different actual trends, and he's found three distinct changes in the music we listen to overall. And I'm, I'm going to push him to see what the next trend is because then I'm going to probably start singing in that genre. And everyone's laughing, which I think is rude. No need to be rude, team. We're still a team. Uh, we'll be talking with Dr. Uh, Matthias Mausch a little bit later today. But uh, before we do that, here's an interesting thing. Last hour, we talked about Donald Trump and the the Trumpinator. And I, I was a little mad because he keeps beating up people. You know, he'll have an interview with an MSNBC, you know, uh, reporter, and he'll just take her to task and like literally taunt her, call her out. Well, so maybe – and I was just making a point that maybe the press, they're just not – they don't dare to take him on. But apparently they do. There is a hunt according uh, to the Daily Beast. There is a hunt right now out there for Donald Trump's hairdresser. They are going to go find out what's really going on under there. They're going to go under the hood and find out what he's doing with that hair. And so you know, this happened. Everybody wanted to find uh, – President Clinton's hairdresser and President Bush's hairdresser or, I mean, 
we used to just call them barbers. But I guess they're stylists or whatever. So people are now are trying to get to Donald Trump. Who somebody's got to cut that hair, don't they? Or do they? Do they? Somebody's. Or does he just send it out to be done? We don't know. But remember, um, in fact, there was an interesting interview on uh, with Joe Morning Joe and his Morning Joe's uh, uh, co-host Micah or Mika. She actually touched his Donald's hair and pulled on it, and she she affirmed that it's it's real, or you know it's really attached. Whatever, it's real. So what's going on under there? And is that fair game? Is it fair game that we chase down their hairstylist to try to find out what's going on? Well, I don't know, Mr. Trump. Is it fair game that you beat up an MSNBC reporter for not being able to get the right words out for a question? Anyway, uh, it's just interesting what happens in our political world and what we as consumers want to actually be listening to. So let's say that we did really get uh, the inside scoop of what's going on under that hair. Would you care? Do you care if your president is wearing a hairpiece or whatever? Do you care that he combs it over? Everyone jokes about it anyway, and for some reason, it doesn't seem to bother him. So if it doesn't bother him, does it bother you? Interesting. It's an interesting thing because I think a lot of our problem with our candidates, it just might be what we're willing to pay attention to. Just a crazy thing. So if you don't want to make hair an issue, then quit paying attention to it. And if you don't want certain candidates to be in the, in the, in the cause, then quit being attracted to them because they've had a television show, for heaven's sakes. Anyway, just my little view. You know. Hair? Who knows? We'll take, uh, let's do this. Oh, we got to go to our headlines. I was about ready to just be done. But first, we got to go to Kathy Aiken. Find out what's going on in the headlines, Kathy. Good morning, Matt. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker became the 15th GOP presidential contender this morning. Walker announced his candidacy in a video calling for a new, fresh leadership with bold ideas from outside Washington. According to the latest Real Clear Politics poll, Walker leads in Iowa, which holds the first caucus in the nation. His 17.8% nearly doubles that of Jeb Bush and Rand Paul, who are tied for second. Meanwhile, Donald Trump drew thousands to a rally in Phoenix over the weekend where he kept up the criticism of Mexican government. Because the word is getting out that we have to stop illegal immigration. We have to. We have to. We have a situation that's absolutely out of control. We have incompetent politicians, not only the president. On the Democratic side, presidential frontrunner Hillary Clinton is expected to lay out her economic plan for the nation today. She'll make the speech at the New York School in New York City. Clinton campaign officials won't say if she'll call for tax increases. Rather, she'll urge companies to expand profit sharing and discuss an economic agenda focused on the middle class. The Midwest is bracing for severe storms today. Nearly 50 million people from Wisconsin to Ohio and Kentucky face threats of damaging winds, heavy rains, and even possible tornadoes. Meanwhile, the south is sweltering. Dallas expected to top 100 degrees today. Speaking of weather, scientists are predicting that in 15 years, a mini ice age will cover the earth. Researchers at Northumbria University say fluid movements within the sun are believed to create 11-year cycles in the weather, and in 2030, the movements will cause a drastic drop in temperatures. The researchers say their way of predicting is 97% accurate. Jordan Spieth won his fourth golf tournament of the year yesterday, winning the John Deere Classic in 
Wimbledon playoff. He now heads to the British Open as the favorite. And Novak Djokovic beat Roger Federer to earn his third Wimbledon crown, second straight over Federer. Minions opened the weekend, netting Universal Pictures a franchise record $115.2 million. That's the second biggest opening weekend for an animated movie. The top animated opening, Shrek the third. And Matt, Dorothy Olsen had quite the birthday party over the weekend. Mm. She's 99 years old and for her birthday, vintage World War II fighter planes flew over Seattle's Boeing Field in her honor. Oh, wow. Olsen was one of nearly 1,000 female pilots from the war. She would fly a plane from the factory, then fly them to U.S. Air Force bases, and then the men would fly them overseas to combat Oh, missions. interesting. Yeah. She was part of the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASPs, and she said she loved buzzing the planes fast and low to the ground because she said who pays attention to the rules when you're a fighter pilot amen she can do anything you know what i we watched pearl harbor again oh did you man over the weekend yeah that was that was just a really and i guess we've probably romanticized it Mm -hmm. to some degree but what a tough group of people i mean when pearl harbor was attacked the country just totally came together. Yep. We had to start making airplanes. We had to start conserving metals, and women got into the factories. Women were right, absolutely. It was powerful. Were, yep. And pilots. I didn't know that women were out flying the planes out They're to the flying people. them to the, yeah, yeah. the Air Force bases, and then the men would go from there. And now today, of course, women uh, uh, fight oh, in, absolutely. In, the, in, the, in the jets. So, But how cool, yeah, a little so flyby. Yeah, she sounded like a pretty tough lady. I know. You'd we have need... to be. Can you imagine if that was your grandma? <laughs> By the way, you know what else I watched? I don't even know the name of it. That's how bad I am. It was a, It's a movie that has Arnold Schwarzenegger and Stallone, and every old oh, kind of has been. Yeah. I don't remember the name either. I never saw it. But Terry I know knows what you're it. talking about. Come on, Terry. Expendables. Expendables 3. Holy cow. We are in There's for it. There's three of them? Well, yeah, apparently. <laughs> Unless they just jump right to three. <laughs> But we are in for it because the baby boomer generation, these are their, these are their peeps. Mm-hmm. But they're already started on just having these kind of remakes of all these old people out there. And the young people, you know, they couldn't get the job done, so they had to bring in the old timers to make it happen. I mean, it was cool, but it's just, I don't know. Did your kids watch it with you? Yeah. Did they like it? I don't know. No one talked. It's almost like we just <laughs> sat there in awe, asleep. like, wow. <laughs> And it, you don't know you don't know if like the fight scene between Schwarzenegger and um, Mel Gibson. We don't you don't know if it's in slow motion or if they're just slower. <laughs> so we're like <laughs> probably a little bit of both. This is like is this slow? I think this is slow motion, kids, because <laughs> they're really slow, Dad. No, no, no. It's just it's just that way. Oh. But so we're gonna have the next twenty years of all these remakes. Yep. I mean, these kind of wannabes. Eventually, you'll have some rest home. Special Forces team <laughs> that pulls up in the community van. You know what I mean? Oh, man. I feel bad for our kids if that's the case. This is the future, that's folks. Bad. The baby boomers <laughs> keeping it alive. Cool. Good story. Good story. Man, I tell you. Isn't it interesting? Just if you look at pop culture going forward, that's, you know, that's interesting. Maybe we will have Arnold Schwarzenegger as a, you know. He's a, he's a director taking senior citizens out and then eventually will turn into special ops. But what if we went backwards into pop music? We've got uh, a researcher from uh, Europe that's going to be joining us on the phone from the University of London. Uh, Dr. Matthias Mausch is going to be talking to us about some research he's done on the evolution of pop music. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Of all the different trends we've had, he basically has narrowed it down to there were three kind of evolutionary 
changes that have happened in music, and he's going to walk us through each one of them. And maybe we're, we're going to see if we can figure out what's, what does the future look like. Future of music. Anyway, interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. What do you think of this song? Little Bohemian Rhapsody. Does it bring any memories back? I love it. Well, it happened to be a song that uh, deeply influenced our next guest, Dr. Matthias Mausch, who is uh, really, he's a music information expert at the Royal Academy of Engineering and Research. He's a fellow at Queen Mary University of London and a team uh, a member of many experts that use technology and evolutionary biology to pinpoint the moments that popular music changed. Now, we all have our favorites, right? But there were certain kind of pivotal moments where the type of music we listen to changed. And uh, we've asked him to uh, join us today to share some of his research and to teach us where those pivotal moments were and see if we can't find out if he can predict the future. Dr. Matthias Mausch, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hello. Very happy to be here. Great to have you. And again, we have we've saw your TED Talk where you talked about uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. How did you get into doing research of all things on music? Uh, well, it, it's a it's a bit convoluted way, really. I I just um, I decided actually as a before I started my undergrad that I was not going to study music, and I went for something more sensible <laughs> for maths. And yeah. then uh, I finished that, and um, and the opportunity came up actually to combine uh, my my passion for music, which you know I've been playing in a band and stuff, um, and and my sort of expertise uh, in in maths. And um, and I I was yeah I got uh, some funding to. Um, uh, do my PhD in music informatics. It's amazing. I mean, it really—it's it, cool because mm. you know, from the '60s on. I mean, we—I guess you could have gone back even farther, really, in the research. But you've been able to pinpoint not just kind of, you know, um, not just kind of a different artist's ability to do something. You've been actually able to pinpoint pivotal shifts, three of them since 1960 to 2010 in the evolution of mm. pop music, right? That's right. Teach us well, about it. Talk uh, how did you, how did you do your research and and, and talk yeah. to us about what you learned. What are those three different areas or those shifts? Yeah, so I mean the the thing the re, the, the thing we wanted to do is um, to actually get away a little bit from, you know, journalism and traditional ways of doing musicology and really look at analyzing the the artifacts if if you if you like the the fossil record of music. So we got the actual recordings. I happen to be working at Last FM, so we, it's a bit like Pandora, the Pandora of Europe. Yeah. And they had lots of recordings and we could get, you know, the like 17,000 recordings from the from the US charts. So we we uh, analyzed them using my 
signal processing tools and so on. So, uh, and then yes, then we had once we had the numbers. When once we could represent these these songs as just cold kind of numbers, then you could look at changes in how things change. And indeed, we found these three changes that you were talking of, and and it's, uh, in, and we pinned them down to 1964. Where there was um, the uh, the British invasion, yeah, eighty uh, three, where there was the synth and and drum samplers <laughs> revolution, and ninety one the hip rap revolution, and I can talk about them a bit more if you like. Yeah, please. Now each one of them, though. So what I guess you were listening for are the, the uses of chords, and how how did you decide that there had been an actual evolutionary shift? Yeah. So. Uh, Okay, so you're quite right. So we have we decided, you know, there's many many things you can analyze in a song, and we wanted to get away from just looking at say how long it is or how loud it is. So we wanted to try and capture a little bit what what's going on musically in there. And and two things that we picked up, uh, algorithms picked up, was were the the chord changes, and on the other hand, timbre, which you can perhaps think of a little bit as instrumentation. Um, and um, so. Yes. So once you've got that for every song, you can kind of get a, a summary for every year. Uh, what what kind of material in terms of chords and what kind of material in terms of instrumentation is in the chart. And once you've got that, then you can compare the years. Interesting. And 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 see how how much this kind of um, this content, this musical content, changes. And then what you know. And and then we looked at. Um, so first of all, actually, we we found that it changes all the time, right? Every year is quite significantly different from the one before. But there were these three periods where um, the charts changed most. They, they they had dramatic change. One of the things I loved in your yeah. TED talk uh, was you gave an example of like a blues chord. I can't remember, like a B seventh. Uh-huh. I can't remember the chord. But and you actually charted how through the years how that chord has kind of dropped off the face of the map as far as being a major yeah. musical chord. And so really, some of the yeah. evolution of music is we've lost certain, even just chords, right? Just certain things have no, are no longer a part of our today's music. Yeah, in, in a way that's true. Of course, you know, we have to say that caution because we looked at, so we wanted to see what in the most, sort of the most popular music um, in the U.S., uh, was like, uh, and that's why we chose the Hot 100, the Billboard right. 100. Of course, you know, as any enthusiast will tell you, the blues scene is still quite alive. It's just not in the charts anymore. Hmm. So, in in 19 around 1960, there was a lot of blues and actually blues-like material. I mean, even though perhaps you wouldn't strictly classify Elvis Presley as as blues, but I mean, his rock and roll was heavily, heavily uh, blues influenced, and that that sort of blues blues influence, as you say. Um, kind of drained out of the charts, and uh, even in the eighties, it's it's basically gone. Yeah, it's interesting. In fact, even my son was playing some yesterday, but it just it brings back some really cool memories. But it's also you can tell it's not something that's of major. It's not it's not on the top top list anymore. But go back to one of your first findings. The, the one of the first shifts of or evolutionary shifts you saw was ironically the Beatles. Basically, that Beatles shift was a pretty strong moment. That's right. Well, everyone knows that the Beatles have been very influential and, uh, you know, let's face it, they really are great. 
Um, but they seem to be part of, uh, you know, it's not just the Beatles that changed. It was, uh, it was a big, you know, they couldn't have done it by themselves. So there's other bands, Rolling Stones, coming over from Britain and crucially also kind of, um, you know, American bands. Uh, even before that, we're moving to sort of more um, more aggressive guitar-y sounds away from, you know, from, from the, the, the soft, um, you know, easy listening kind of, um, well, you know, uh, jazzy, jazzy bits, and also the chords uh, move from more complex stuff, including uh, these dominant seventh chords that are typical of blues and jazz, to more straight major and minor chords. So um, yeah, the Beatles were driving that sort of change, but there was also around them there was a lot of change as well. Is it? Do you sense then? Is it? Is it the market driving the changes in this evolution, or is it the artist? Driving well, the market. That's a really, that's an extremely interesting question, and we have been, you know, it's not in the paper because, to be honest, we've been struggling with that. Okay, so we would really love, and especially my my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Professor Armand Leroy from Imperial College, who's the evolutionary biologist on the team. He's really interested in trying to understand which exactly what you asked, right? Yeah. What is it that drives this change that we see? Uh, because it, this, this is kind of what evolutionary biologists do, right? It's called selection right. for them. Uh, and, uh, and he wants to find out. And we found it very hard to find out because it seems like there, so there is, you know, you can distinguish difference between the top 10 in the charts and the bottom yeah. 10, say. But it's not clear that then the artists, um, you know, act on that and say, oh, we want to be more similar to the, um, to the top ten next year, right? Right, next right. We write is going to be. Uh, so that's what we we were hoping to see, and you know, we we wanted to unravel this beautiful. Yeah, that would have been know, great. Dynamic, and we. Knew, yeah, it would have been, and it is very hard. So it seems to work sometimes, but yeah. sometimes it just doesn't seem to work. And it seems like the the um, the 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 um, audience or whatever they call the, the consumers who buy the music actually have quite little influence only on. Yeah. What, uh, what producers do. It's really. So, I don't know. We, we, we're still on it. We're still on it. We're trying to find yeah. the answer, but we haven't yet. Oh, well, it, it's just fascinating to me because I watch my son who plays a lot of music, but you can also see that he's very open to whatever others are bringing out. So, whatever they're bringing out, he can mimic it, and you can see that it could create a revolution if enough people would mimic it. But. Let's do this. We're going to take a break. We're talking with Dr. Matthias Mausch, who uh, really, I think, has done some fascinating research here on the evolution of pop music. He's already told us one of the main kind of, uh, you know, jump off moments of music was when the Beatles hit in 1964-ish as part of their research. But you may be surprised about who the second shift was, was based around. It might blow your mind. It's in the 80s. It actually probably will make sense once you hear. Stick with us. We'll be right back talking about the evolution of music. Up next, right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you love music? And have you just noticed that over the years there's been a shift or two or three? 
Well, joining us right now, Dr. Matthias Mausch, who is uh, a professor of music information. He's an expert in that field and a Royal Academy of Engineering Research Fellow at Queen Mary University of London. He has been trying to pinpoint the moments that popular music have changed. Now, we know there's always shifts, right? You can just think of shifts, but don't think of it so much as a shift just between, like, Michael Jackson to Madonna. Think of it as a shift of actually how the music changed. And our and as our guest today, he's trying to teach us about three kind of ma- major evolutionary kind of shifts, revolutionary shifts in music. Dr. Matthias Mausch, thanks again for joining us. Happy to be here. <laughs> this is really fascinating to me because just as a, I have kids that love music and they love going back and they're blown away, you know, listening to uh, Ella Fitzgerald and, and or um, just going back anywhere. I mean, even Piano Man, Elton John, just kind of creating an excitement level and they love kind of going back to that. But when I think about it, you've taught us already that kind of the 64 era when the Beatles came out, that was a major shift in popular music. But then you get into another shift. The second shift you talk about is in 83 or so. But And you kind of you, you mention it's the Arrhythmics. The Arrhythmics were the ones that that were maybe the pioneer of that shift. Well, it's it's well the the the, the rhythmic, rhythmics were certainly uh, sort of on the trend, right? Because they used all the new technology that was available then, and it was a pretty exciting era then for new technology. You had suddenly uh, samplers where you could replay any sound anytime you wanted, and drum machines and and synthesizers all became um, available at you know uh, non well yeah. for less than million of millions of dollars so so studios suddenly had them and people started using them big time so um, that, there's when we see this big change not so much actually in in harmony so the harmony stayed more or less the same but there's a big change in instrumentation so people really used these new technologies um, yeah. Did the chords change? I mean, was that was it a, was it just the instrumentation change? So it sounded more electronic. Or did the chords actually yeah, change? I think, I, so we see um, we see a, a big change towards um, more um, more percussive sounds, especially, and also some so more more aggressive sounds that can come from sort of aggressive synthesizers. Also, for, there's a bit of guitar revival as well at the same time, actually, where uh, stadium rock comes into the charts. But yeah, we see this percussiveness, um, and and we think that's that must, is, is definitely the the influence of the um, of the new technology. It's interesting too how your your advancement of technology and even research methods is now changing your ability to understand our music retroactively. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Because you probably wouldn't have been able to do this type of research, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Oh no. Yeah, even even perhaps 10, 15 years ago it would have been hard to do because, you know, you need a few things. You need a bit of technology to be able to uh, have the algorithms to analyze it, but you also just you have simply have got to have the computers that can store so many tracks and um, you know just do the calculations. So uh, you know it's been it's been possible for a few years now, but not not many. So we go from the Beatles to kind of the tech sound, uh, the the synthesizer drum sounds. What was the what was mm. the third kind of evolution you saw? I guess that's more yeah, today. Well, that was... Pardon? When did that? When did the third evolution take place? 
Yeah, that happened in the early 90s, and that's when uh, hip-hop and rap really hit the charts. So they'd been lingering in the underground for a while, since the late 70s or early 80s, uh, Grandmaster Flash, and, you know, had a hit here and then. And uh, But there was nothing, nothing major in terms of, like, the whole... Ch- people were still thinking... So I think the main uh, population of the U.S. was still thinking of rap as a passing phenomenon and then um, i think what really must have changed so i read up a little bit on hip-hop because you know being in europe and, and white guy <laughs> yeah the white I, european I right so massively yeah so I, it happens much more in the u.s of course and i was reading uh, a book on, on hip-hop and um, and it seems like so one big thing was uh, that mtv started um in the late 70s um i think 87 or 88 or something they had uh, they started with yo mtv raps and that that dr- drove um Hip hop and rap to be at, from a, a regional phenomenon, which is mainly in, the, in New York and then in around LA, um, to a national phenomenon. And I think that's, that's perhaps why we see uh, such a big increase that starts really in the late 80s and goes on till uh, 93, where I think that sort of the the top um, is is uh, hip hop really hits a um, big high. So um, yeah, this is an exciting change and uh, happens to be the strongest that we see. Not extremely much stronger than the others, but you know, it's uh, it's the, the strongest we see. It's topping it. What wh- where are we today? What uh, where do you see the trends going for right now? Are, are uh, we still in that hip hop chart? All, well, hip hop has it seems to have um, you know the the, the massive. So what we detected really was that there, there the um, uh, harmony really got pushed in the background, and our algorithms actually find it very hard to extract um, chords from hip hop and rap because sometimes there just isn't, like in in Tone Lock's Wild Thing, there's really essentially no chords going on at all. Yeah. Um, or, or sometimes they, are, you know, there are chords in the background, but someone is rapping over them, so so the you know the the chords uh, can barely be discerned. So, um, yeah, so, but then I think what has happened is a little bit that sort of uh, rap got into the mainstream and they actually got mixed with other genres and there's a bit more, you know, R&B has a bit more chords back in them again and so people combine more rap with uh, other forms of pop and so on. So, um, yeah, so it's uh, it's very interesting but um, very hard for me to... Actually, we haven't looked at the, the years since 2011 and... Um, and so hard for me to to say much about the present. I'm afraid. You you I know it's it's kind of too bad because if you could predict the future, we could all go invest in it and make a lot That's of money right. together. Yeah. Yes, I think this is this is going to happen, but it's it's going to be. So people are trying to do it, of course, right? There's been a long there's a long history of people uh, pretending to be able to predict what is going to be hit, and essentially it doesn't work, right? So if you give me um. Uh, hit it can go uh, a song it can become a hit or it might not even if it's by a famous artist you know you never really know but um exactly but for um you know if, if you give me 100 songs uh then perhaps i could tell you, you know what the the rate of these songs that are going to make it hmm. um and that actually might might you know there's there's a little bit of a bit like the weather report right they can tell you you know 60% chance of rain tomorrow right and uh, wherever you are it might or might not rain but you know uh, it, it, people have shown that actually the predictions are extremely good so if you if you look back on the year and uh, you know you look at all the days that it was predicted 60% chance you really in really in 60% of those days it is it actually rained so anyway I'm, I'm no, but, but interesting. But, um, that's a, that's an interesting idea. That all of a sudden you take 
the statistics and you, you can maybe use better predictor models to, to kind of gauge the future. How did evolutionary biology become part of your your process? I mean, because that was part of your strength was you were able to use some of the theories, I guess, or techniques of evolutionary biology in your study. Mm. Yeah, so it's a lovely story, actually, because um, I've got... So the, the guy who's now become a friend of mine through our work, really, uh, Armand Leroy, um, he, I saw him uh, in 2010, uh, and he was giving a talk, I think, and I saw just the, the video online, and he was talking about doing research on, um, on uh, ethnomusicological recordings, on field recordings from around the world, like old traditional music. And they'd, they'd, uh, they'd uh, sort of data crunched some... Um, some big database where people had annotated uh, characteristics of these songs. And I dropped him an email saying, Armand, we can, I think we can do this better with automatic methods. And, and he, he was, um, so I found out he's an evolutionary biologist, and I was wondering, wow, he's, <laughs> he's looking into this. I and mean, because he's, um, you know, he's fascinated by music, and, and he brings with him, like, all the, not just actually the techniques, but also just the, the frame of mind, the kind of the philosophy behind uh, scientific analysis, which uh, doesn't is not so, doesn't feature so much in my computer science and uh, electronic engineering background. So, um, so we, we've kind of found the ideal match. Really, he's a he's a scientist biologist with a keen interest in music, and I was um, I'm I'm a well engineer in music informatics with a keen interest in evolution. So it was <laughs> just a match. A match made in heaven. <laughs> that's right. But, um, yeah, so I think that's how it came about. It's pretty neat. When I mean, this is, I think, an example of where we're heading with our research, because now we have these cutting-edge tools. I mean, years ago, how much would we have ever studied the evolution of music except, like, classical music? And, I mean, to me, it's, it's super right. fascinating. I just, as I see my son in our basement, because this is, music is changing his life. It's helping him cope with life. But it's also interesting, too, because they have all of these other, you know, devices like auto-tuning and, and things that uh-huh. didn't exist years ago. And yet a, and a lot of purist, uh, a lot of pure uh, um, musicians don't like all of this, a lot of this technology because it's coming in and taking over. And yet with the Eurythmics and other technologies, it seems like, you know, like you were saying, some of the harmonies go away. <laughs> And maybe some of the technology might dominate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to really see, right? Because there's always been technology, right? Our our what we think as the the bedrock of classical music, the the piano, that's hasn't been around for more than like I don't know what is it, three hundred years or something, yeah. right? You know, Bach uh, Bach didn't have one. He was playing on other things, <laughs> and then this new thing, this new technology came in, and it was louder. And, and um, you know, and then Mozart, you know, had uh, suddenly had this louder thing at his disposal, and he used that, of course, right? Because, and, and so on. So, um, you know, it, it, technology is changing all the time. Hmm. So hard to say which one is bad and which isn't, right? Yeah. I guess we have to, like with weapons. Well, yeah, and I, it also depends them. what generation's talking about it, right? Because every generation thinks the next generation's music isn't so great. You know, it seems like that's kind of a common thread. Turn off your rock and roll music. Hey, as we wrap this up, again, we're talking with Dr. Matthias Mausch. And teach us, what, what, where do you think the future is going with this? What, what kind of research will you be doing down the road? Uh, well, we've got this. You know, I just told you about Armand's. Uh, years ago, we had this thing about um, ethnomusicology. And 
and I contacted him about doing this with real audio analysis and it seems like we're finally actually getting around to doing that now cool. so we we're in contact with some archives around the world we've got some friends who know people in in France and Belgium uh, the US and so on uh, and we're trying to gather this big database of maybe 100,000 tracks from the traditional from tribes and and you know, old societies around the world and try to see how music is spread around the world oh that is fascinating and, yeah, how certain sounds so. and, and rhythms and tones end up being picked up around the world. Interesting. That's right. And this is kind of before Western radio dominated. Um, you know, them. So we're trying to get at what people used to do when they still, when music was still, um, you know, taught uh, from, from from musician to musician. You only, bet. Or mainly. That's so, um, yeah, it's going to be this uh, quite exciting. That is exciting. Well, we appreciate you again, Dr. Mateus Mausch. Uh, wonderful work there, especially if you love music. Um, it's just it's kind of cool to see what uh, a little technology and a good brain behind it can do. Uh, good stuff. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. We'll be doing a little coach's corner after this break. Stick with us, friends. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world right here on BYU Radio. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't it interesting? We are now doing research, finding out ideas, information that we could not have even thought about the research or attempted the research because the technology wasn't advanced enough. We now have the technology to input 17,000 songs into a computer program and with an algorithm figure out the different types of of changes and shifts, dramatic shifts that happen in our music history and culture. Imagine the day that they enter in 100,000 songs from cultures all over the country or all over the world and start to actually see their shifts and see where those shifts have influenced other shifts. Holy cow. I mean, music is, is powerful anyway. Have you ever noticed, for you, is it a powerful tool? I use music to just relax and calm down, and it's it's very simple for me. Some probably it just doesn't impact them as much. I know for me it's worth getting a brand new song because if I can listen to it twenty times in a year, mm, it'll it'll help me manage me and my emotion. So, music it's a wonderful tool, right? Uh, and technology it's a wonderful tool. But for a lot of our relationships, technology it's it's hard. Let me give you some crazy statistics that uh, come out of a study involving 143 women in committed relationships. They found that 74% of them think that the cell phones detract from their interactions with their spouse or partner. They call it technoference. I have it just with Ben here. Ben's always on his phone all day long. Typity type. Actually, he's not. Let me clarify that. That was James. James is always on the phone. Ben Ben doesn't have a phone. So if anybody would like to give Ben a phone, give us a call. one eight five five chat byu Looking for a phone for Ben. Um, but this process, this technoference, creates a problem. It's Even if it's infrequent, it sets off this chain of negative events where we have conflict about the technology, the relationship quality drops, life satisfaction, depression goes up, 
It's the pattern of technoference. Do you experience it in your life? Where somebody pulls out their phone, and again, we saw it over the weekend. Everybody comes home, and again, I've got all these kidlets running around the house from 10 up to 20, uh, and then I have a daughter that's married that comes over. So we have all these people, and in, on any given moment, you could, ha- you could look around and have everybody on their phone. It's sad. It's sad. That's when you just you send out a mass text. You start talking that way. The participants reported, though, the following types of technoferences happening at least daily. By the way, this comes from a study at uh, between with T Brandon T McDaniel of the Pennsylvania State University and Sarah Coyne here of Brigham Young University. They authored a study that is uh, for psychology and popular media culture. The study participants found the following types of technoference. So you be identifying if you come across any of these. 62% of people said in the study of the women said technology interferes with their free time together. It gets in the way of your free time. 35% said their partner will pull out the phone mid-conversation if they receive a notification. 25% said their partner will actively text other people during the couple's face-to-face conversations. That happens all the time with me. By the way, I've got an update about technology that I, I don't know that I've made the announcement. I have an, an Apple Watch now. Not to brag, but I'm super, super tech literate. Not. But some good friends, uh, Carolyn and David Myers, gave me – they're the ones that gave me the Fitbit that started to get me a bit fit. And – um Lost about 10 pounds on the Fitbit. And so the, then I met them, talked to them, and they said, man, if you like the Fitbit, the the, the new watch is going to change your life. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And basically the idea is, yeah, when you're done with your watch and switch, I'll, I'll use your used watch because I'm not going to go buy – I really am not. I'm not going to go buy an Apple watch. I mean I'm, I, w- I would now, now that I've used one and now that I know how cool you are when you have one. But I wouldn't – just go buy one. I'm not an early adopter. I'm a really, 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 really late adopter. And so, but I've been wearing it. And now I don't even look at my phone hardly as much, but now I just look at my wrist all day. <laughs> Drives my wife crazy. But I'm just trying to stay, stay up to, uh, you know, up with all my important peeps. Anyway, here's Simone. In her own experience, Sarah Coyne has found a few strategies to manage the problem. So Professor Coyne here from Brigham Young University, place the phone somewhere else on silent, such as in the purse or on the shelf. Just put it on silent mode. Go plug it in in another room. Forget about it. By the way, if you have the wristwatch, the Apple Watch, it'll keep reminding you that you're getting messages even when your phone is on silent in another room. If you need to check on something legitimately important, provide an explanation first, then check your phone. Whoa, hey, I don't want to interrupt you. I don't want to seem rude, but I'm just waiting for an email from, you know, my parole officer to see if I have to report to court. That's the one Ben gave me today. So I'm like, okay, Ben, just check your phone if you need to. Um, so, but, but I like the idea, too, because by telling somebody that you're going to check your phone, it, it makes it so that you actually have to be pretty, you know, intentional. You're actually going to make it overt instead of just sneaking it in there. Also, don't get defensive when you get called out for tech- technoference. It's somebody's way of saying they'd like to connect with you in purpose in person. They're not saying, hey, loser, you're making me feel bad. They're just saying, hey, I really want to be with you. And 
can you put your phone down? Like today when I was talking to Ben, Ben was on the phone trying to check with his parole officer, all that, yada, yada. And I'm like, hey, Ben, can you put the phone away? And we're starting the show. And he got all mad. He's like, get off my back. It was really bad. Anyway, uh, he should know better. But he shouldn't. He doesn't need to react that way, right? We're all just friends. Ben, do you have something to say? You look like you're eager to say something. I just thought I didn't have a phone. Yeah, I did too. Until you pulled it out, which is weird. He's getting all mouthy. James never would have said that. James would have just said, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. No, sir. (laughs) Ben's getting an attitude. Um, Do you have technoference in your life? Is it getting in the way? Is, Is it starting to keep you trapped from your relationships? The research shows it's a real thing. And it's offensive. So I just suggest a little coach's corner. Why don't you go talk to your family and your friends? Make some rules around your technology. Have some what I call fasts or tech-free moments where we just put all the phones away. We put all the tech away. Holy cow. We just need to put everything away. Heaven forbid and go relate once in a while. Anyway, we'll post that article about how technology is interfering in your relationship, that concept of technoference. It'll be on our Twitter page. Just go find us at uh, Dr. Matt Show, and uh, you can get a, a link to that great article. Good stuff, folks. Good, good stuff. Technology, it ain't all bad. There's great videos. In fact, we put up a really cool video on my Facebook page. Go find me on Facebook. A really cool video shot by my son, who loves technology, showing the power of uh, of just joy. After a sad two years not having my son home, a really cool video of when my son came in and came home and came off the airplane. But go on, watch that video of my wife's face and the joy she felt having her son back in her arms. Cool stuff, folks. Technology, it ain't all bad. We'll take a break. Come back with more headlines. Next hour, this is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. This is an APB, folks. We are on the lookout for a drug lord, El Chapo. I think El Chapo means the short one, doesn't it? It's interesting. El Chapo uh, has escaped. He is a drug lord. And he escaped beneath Mexico's Supermax prison. Are you kidding me? And he got away in his little getaway vehicle, which I thought was a motorcycle. He just went in, by the way, to his shower in his cell. Uh, excuse me. You have a shower in your cell, apparently. And uh, next thing you know, they, you know, he should have been in there for a little private time to shower. The cameras were on, but not while he's showering. Come on. Give the guy some privacy. Next thing you know, there's a one-mile-long tunnel underneath his shower. El Chapo is El Frio and is out and about. Now, when you got a, when you got a drug lord that may, you know it's worth $3 billion, 
it seems like you you got to pay really close attention to him, especially because he escaped like in 08, I think. Now he escaped yeah, a long time like 13 years ago, he was he he had he had escaped he escaped and was free. And they couldn't find him for about 13 years. You know, then they found him, then they put him in the Supermax facility cuz nobody ever gets out of Supermax facilities, right? You know, you know what? But how many times has that happened in your house where, you know, the shower water just kept ruining the wall, ruining it until eventually it rotted away and you had a one-mile tunnel under your house? I think there's something crazy going on here. Well, he's out. So anyway, just keep the look, keep on the lookout. I mean, you got to find the guy. I asked my son who lived in northern Mexico for two years, hey, uh, so do you know who El Chapo is? And he's like, you mean El Chapo Guzman? Laura? I'm like, yeah. How do you know that? He's like, everybody knows El Chapo. <laughs> you killed my father. Prepare to die. I mean, there's like this loyalty thing to him. He's a bad dude, and the Americans are ticked because, you know, our entire drug uh, program runs around keeping El Chapo in the El Jalo. Anyway, not J-Lo. That's a different, that's a whole other different thing. Different thing. Major difference there. But uh, anyway, so be on the watch out for him. It's kind of a sad thing. And again, something I haven't mentioned today that I think is super important. Today is uh, Embrace Your Geekness Day. In the age of social media, mobile technology, and gaming consoles, it's impossible to avoid being just a little bit geeky. Don't fight it. Just let it in. Just let the wave of geekiness ride over you. Embrace your geekiness because today, folks, is Embrace Your Geekiness Day. By the way, Ben just lit right up. Ben, why are you so happy? You're like an engineering student. It's validation. It's validation. Today, Ben, you are normal like the rest of us. Yes. You just made that up, right? Totally. <laughs> no, it is Geek Day. It is. That really is It's a Embrace day. Your geek, Geekiness Day. But Ben's not a big geek. I'm telling you. Ben's got a lot of ladies in the in our offices that they like you, the Ben. And I wasn't going to bring it out and make it public, but they're all like, where's Ben? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not Ben's keeper. Like, can you bring him out and just let him talk to us and stuff? It's cool, Ben. He just gave me a thumbs up. Ben's kind of quiet. You know, when it comes to the ladies, he gets a little scared. But, but we have an incredible history on the show. Pretty much everybody that's ever sat in that spot right there. Actually, it's not true. A couple of the people we've gotten married on the show. My goal is to get Ben married. Is that all right, Ben? Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. And today, what better way to do it than embrace your geekness day. If you are a geeky type of girl looking for a geeky type of guy... Give us a call, one eight five five chat byu or text us at Dr. Matt Show. Tweet us at Dr. Matt Show. Ben's family will be so proud. Anyway, let's head to the headlines now and uh, find out what Kathy Aiken's been learning for us. Good morning, Matt. Add one more name to the GOP presidential race. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker made his announcement in a video this morning saying he's running for president because Americans deserve a leader who will fight to win for them. He also called for a new, fresh leadership with big, bold ideas from outside Washington. 
According to the latest Real Clear Politics poll, Walker leads in Iowa, which holds the first caucus in the nation. His 17.8% nearly doubles that of Jeb Bush and Rand Paul, who are tied for second place. Walker is the 15th GOP presidential contender. On the Democratic side, presidential frontrunner Hillary Clinton is expected to lay out her economic plan for the nation today. Clinton campaign officials won't say if she'll be calling for tax increases. Rather, she'll urge companies to expand profit sharing and discuss an economic agenda focused on the middle class. Clinton's speech will take place at the New York School in New York City. The Midwest is bracing for severe storms today. Nearly 50 million people from Wisconsin to Ohio and Kentucky will face threats of damaging winds, heavy rains, even possible tornadoes. Aaron Cromer, a Buffalo Bills offensive line coach, was booked for misdemeanor battery charge after police alleged he pushed a boy to the ground, punched him in the face, and told him he'd kill his family if he went to the police. Cromer allegedly confronted three boys at a Florida beach over the use of beach chairs. Cromer is in his first season with the Buffalo Bills. Jordan Spieth beat Tom Gillis on the second hole of a playoff to win the John Deere Classic yesterday. That's his fourth victory of the year. Spieth now heads to this week's British Open in search of his third major championship, and he is the favorite to win that major. And at Wimbledon yesterday, Novak Djokovic beat Roger Federer in four sets, winning his third title on the grass court, the second straight win against Federer. I was coming into the tournament as everybody else trying to fight for the trophy and to be able to stand here now in front of you and holding it, it's a, it's a dream come true again. Even though I won it for the third time, uh, every time it feels like first. Serena Williams won her sixth Wimbledon title on Saturday, making up four straight majors for the second time. It was also Serena's 21st Grand Slam title. If Serena wins the U.S. Open next month, she'd win the calendar year Grand Slam. That's something that hasn't been done in more than a quarter century. That was Steffi Graf back in 1988. And Matt, because of the storms in the Midwest, Major League Baseball's home run derby could be in jeopardy Mm. tonight in Cincinnati. Darn it. Oh, come on. The derby has only been canceled once in the 30-year history due to bad weather. That was back in 1988 in the place, Cincinnati. Well, you know, oh, really? Yeah. Why did we not learn? I know. It seems like the Derby would even be better with a little wind behind it. A little lightning. A little you know, lightning. Kind of like the movie sure. with uh, uh, Robert Redford. Yeah. What was that? Uh, the Natural. The natural, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. There you go. All you need is a, just hold up your bat. <laughs> <laughs> Have the lightning bolt strike and you'll hit a home run. Oh, they can't cancel that. They can't delay that. That's, yeah, that's one that's, of the biggies. That gets the big crowd. and. Uh, that's probably, if I was going to do... If I was going to play baseball, that's the one I'd play. I just do. The home run derby. I just want to be in the home run derby. Yeah. I mean, I. I well, know. they just you know they pitch you the little. Uh, yeah, the little big, fluffy balls. And, yeah. I could just pound those all day long. <laughs> I yeah, don't know about that. Matt, I doubt but... it. <laughs> that's a long way to. Hit I'm a home pretty run. sure somehow it would impact my plantar. <laughs> and your two muscles. <laughs> and my two muscles. I think I'm really down to one. I think you'd be better at tennis. Oh, I love tennis. I I'm really too. good at tennis. I mean, I used to be before the accident. <laughs> I actually did uh, hit myself in the head once with my racket and got stitches. That's you how intense not. I I did. But I, I I played in high school, not to brag. I was pretty good. But, you know, Singles this, or doubles? I played uh, both, actually. Oh. But I, I prefer doubles because it's faster mm-hmm. and you don't have to move as much. Right. Yeah, you only have <laughs> half the half. Yeah, the court. So, yeah. yeah, and I like playing the net, and I can't remember how it happened, but I think there was just this ball that was. Ba- I don't remember how it happened, but I swung. <laughs> you missed the ball and hit your head, and I hit my head. I I was in the continental <laughs> grip on my racket, and I shouldn't have been, and it pounded right in my head. Was that the wood racket or the aluminum? This was the aluminum. Okay. This was a 
Prince. What was it back there? Oh, yeah, those like big a pro. Overhead, yeah, uh-huh. I can't remember what it was. Mm-hmm. But I used to love my little wood tennis racket growing up. I had a Chris Everett wood. Did racket. you? I, I had a Bjorn Borg, not a, to brag. That would have been a collector's item. Oh, yeah. And then Jimmy Connors, the round one, that uh-huh. was a strange one. Yeah. I tried that I one. Had and that I had that one. I could control that ball, was going everywhere. See, back then, because the rackets were so bad, mm-hmm. it, you had to be better. Oh, yeah, you had to have con- good control. Yeah. Nowadays, the rackets are so big, you know, you can just, it's like a, anybody can hit a ball now. Yeah. And the, the thing I don't like about it is, especially in the men's game, sometimes it's serve and that's it. Yeah. Uh, there's hardly any rallies because they hit the ball so hard because the rackets are so. Serena's you know, rallies, those were pretty intense. Yeah, she's amazing. Oh, my <laughs> goodness, she's a great player. <laughs> Oi! Hoi-ya! Panda. Who started that? And I can't remember who started it. The uh, one, um, was it Navratilova though? Didn't no, she do a little grunting? No, Serena. No, not Serena. Um, oh, I just went blank on her name. Oh, that's gonna drive me crazy. Huh. Hoi, oi! It was an oi sound, and yes. I was like, "What is that?" By the way, have you heard Ben when he bends over to pick up like a pencil or something? Is it oi? Hoi! It's like that. It's weird. Yours is a grunt and his is an mm-hmm, oi. Mm-hmm. This is scary. Yeah. I need to get out of here. It's really a perfect combination when they're together. Men, you guys make weird noises. Yes, we do. Thank I you know very that much. having three sons, believe me, I know all the noises <laughs> you guys make. Those plus more right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. When we come back, Heather Ann Johnson's going to be joining us. Hadge, we call her. She's going to be uh, talking to us about crafting a family narrative. Mm, what does that mean? More from uh, Heather Johnson on uh, from FamilyVolley.com. Great stuff. Straight ahead. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Heather Ann Johnson is in the house. Uh, Hadge, we call her, and um, you know we, we're we're looking for it. We used to have a favorite little line. She's soaking in it. Hadge, Today. Hadge from the what was it? The fifties, sixties. Yeah, Paul Mollive. Paul Mollive commercials. Just when I came to love her, she's disappeared. She's soaking in it. It's because uh, I think James, when he left, he took it with him. Well, that's mean. It. I we we call it. It's he's being a jerk. <laughs> Let's reach out. We're actually, we're going to, Ben's on it. So Ben's going to figure out where our favorite quotes are of, she's soaking in it. Okay, Ben. Heather Johnson, by the way, is a BYU uh, professor, adjunct faculty member. She's the real deal, folks. She comes on the show, has a a wonderful website, familyvolley.com, and a book, Family Fun Fridays, where she teaches us how to actually engage our children and have a great relationship with them, make sure that we're growing and we're strong. She has a book, Family Fun Fridays, also soon to be released books, Family Fun Saturdays through Wednesdays. Uh, Thursday, uh, not such a fun day for some of us. Just makes it harder. We need a break. Who doesn't? How are you? I'm great. Now, it seems like you might be expecting a baby or Or you had the prime rib buffet. I did. I did. Luckily, this time it's expecting a baby. It's two weeks away. Two weeks. Now, what are we gonna what are, what are we gonna do with little Matt? Little, we wish you know it would if it was a boy, it would be a lot easier to name. But this is our fifth girl in a <gasps> row. Do you need a girl name? We do. Benny. Benny. <laughs> Have you ever heard of that? It's a cute girl. Yeah, name. that that could work. Emmy. Emmy could work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, okay. So you didn't like that one? No, not so much. You said it could work. If you say it could work, that means. Eh. Yeah. No. 
no, that that's not going to. We have our son is our oldest, and then this will be five girls in a row. And after you've named four girls, yeah. you're kind of out of names. Yeah. It's true. You're uh, Kike. So Kike. <laughs> not, not so much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep working on you it. You keep trying. What, what You said you want to talk about the weirdest topic. For people that don't know what it is, what is crafting a family narrative? This is a really what cool you, topic. What do you need a narrative for? Okay, it's really cool. So let's okay. start right at the beginning. What happens is there's a great article in the New York Times. Yeah. It comes out back in March. And Emory University, some psychologists there were commissioned to look at dysfunctional families. So they get this commission and they're like, ah, you know what? I don't really want to look at dysfunction. Right. Instead, let's look at what makes a family successful. Functional families. Fantastic, right? Let's yeah. go the other direction and put a positive spin on this. So they start looking at these families and they find out that families who are most successful have a strong family narrative. Mm. Super cool. So we'll talk about what that means. But really, they're arguing now that this could be the single greatest predictor of children's emotional health and happiness. The single greatest. That's a huge claim. That is a huge claim. claim, So of all things that could improve a child's success rate, a narrative. A family narrative. So family narrative is simply the stories we tell our children about our families. That's all we're looking at. Very simple, very easy. Well, okay, but hold on. But like if I'm like, okay, so grandpa, when he went to prison, that's a different narrative. But it's still about your family. Oh, interesting. So just making them connected to their family through narrative. So let's do benefits first so we understand kind of where this comes from. The benefits, again, are monumental. The first one is, and the biggest, is that it connects our children to a greater body of people. They are no longer alone. They're not fighting the fight alone. They're not going through a random Tuesday alone. They have this connection to people that are much bigger than them. That's cool. And it can go through generations and generations. Now, once we have this connection, it forms what we like to call an identity. It gives them their their identity and builds it upon these relationships. Now, I think about identity, especially in our family. I come from a long line of baseball players, which means our family narrative is filled with a lot of baseball yeah, stories. Yeah, athletes, yeah. Now, to explain how this works, I could go play baseball in high school or softball and have a really bad day. I could strike out, you know, five times, go 0 for 5, bad day at the plate, and I can come home. And because of this identity and stories, I have people around me who know exactly what it's like to strike out five times. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. So there's someone there to say whether it's okay or let's go practice or let's, you know, figure out what's going on. Let's work through it. Now, at the same time, I could go to that to the baseball field and I could have a great day. I could go five for five. You know, I could have game winning catch in center field, whatever it might be. Yeah. And I come home and not only do I have people around me who share that and can help me understand and feel good about it, but I've got stories of a grandfather and a great-grandfather, and their wives who supported them, who all then build into my identity, Yeah, right? So we're connected to a lot more than just ourselves, and we feel understood and we feel accepted. Now, one of the biggest reasons kids are going to start making choices that we don't necessarily approve of is because they don't feel accepted in any group, let alone in their family. So they're out trying to fit into a group or find a group. So the family narrative just... Helps create the context for the fact that they fit. They belong to this group. It's exactly right. Inherently. They know where they belong. It's exactly right. A couple other huge benefits that the research at Emory University found. They also found out that families uh, who have a strong family narrative, their children have higher self-esteem. Wow. They're better able to tackle challenges that come their way. They have or feel that they have a greater sense of control over their lives. They're more resilient. 
I mean, think about those benefits. Those are monumental yeah. things for getting kids through not just tough years like junior high and high school, but into adulthood. We need those things. We had Bronco and Holly Mendenhall on the show. So what do you do, though, if your family narrative is football? Sure. But you're the kid that's not the football player. Some of Bronco's kids are more like artists. They're they're not necessarily football players right. or athletes. They and like football, but they'd rather do art. Right, and that's okay. What you're going to do is you're going to recognize that like that family narrative fit for us. Right. There were some other things, though, that fit better for my brothers that didn't necessarily fit for me. And so you work through until you find a family narrative that will fit the entire family. Yeah. But understand that this narrative is a lot bigger than just who's living right now mm-hmm. and who lives in our home. So a successful family narrative is what's called an oscillating narrative. An oscillating narrative looks at the ups and the downs or the goods and the bads, not just the bads. So we don't want to have conversations with our kids that only say, man, your grandpa was amazing. Your mom's amazing. Everybody's amazing because that's not true. Right. Right. And we don't want to have it the other way where all we do is talk about all the crud and Uh hardships that we've dealt with for the last 100 years. Right. We're not doing that either. Because my narrative would have been uh, we don't do math. We're Townsend's. Townsend's don't do (laughs) math. They don't do math. Right. But but so you want the good and the bad. That's actually really cool, too, because – some of the bad actually might be things that are – I have a client that their whole family has anxiety. Right. So part of the bad, I guess, is that we have anxiety, but they also have the stories of conquering it or mastering it. So we're a family that might tend to be a little more anxious. Sure. And we still can make the best of our world. Absolutely. And so you touch on the exact point of the oscillating narrative. The key then is bigger than the ups and the downs. It's then making sure that we make the point that – through the ups and downs, this family still stayed strong. That is cool. Or that individual Mm -hmm. still made it through. And so just like you're saying, we want to make sure we hit both you know, sides of the spectrum. But that's the key. It's that we can do it and we have. Your great grandpa did it. It was hard, but he got through it. Or this family, you know, 200 years, whatever it might be, tell those stories. That's huge because it's, that's the key, I guess, to resiliency. So you're teaching your kids, this is a resilient tool that's actually coming from your history, your heritage. Absolutely. And it also says you're anchored. So you don't need to float away and go disappear and not become something. You're going to just add to everyone else's legacy. That's exactly right. And this legacy is also going to buoy you up. I love this. And so that's what they draw on. See, not so weird, This right? is a narrative. This yeah, is why? good stuff. We need to make it like superhero <laughs> story. But it's really not. It's also superhuman. You're it just is. humans. It's us. But this now, is our context of all of our family. Right. And the next question oftentimes parents will ask me is they'll say, wait a second, though. Do these stories have to be true and accurate? Oh, yeah. Because we've all heard the stories, right? Yeah. Our, you know, great aunt somebody tells us a story and then we hear it from our dad and he's right. like, that's that's not yeah. what happened. So we hear that. Now, the great thing is they don't necessarily have to be 100% accurate. Now, we are not suggesting you make stuff up. That's not yeah. what we're talking about. Did you hear how Grandpa <laughs> uh, stopped the Civil War? Right, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> we're not going that far. But as far as accuracy goes, what happens is when we tell these stories, we're usually telling them to a family member because they're struggling in some way or need some help. And so we modify the story to fit their situation. Oh, cool. That is perfectly okay. Yeah. And that's okay if that's the narrative that's passed on. You know, we're we're so quick to say, well, maybe I shouldn't say it because I don't really know if he was 10 or 12. Well, 10 or 12 doesn't matter. It's mm-hmm. it's the story about honesty in school and making the right decision. That's what matters. You know, it seems like, and we have to take a break, but it seems like the history is we usually don't tell the bad stories. Right. So – you may have a family that like this one that has a history of anxiety, but no one's ever talked about the anxiety side. They just always talk about how great everyone is. Right. And yet 
you may have insight that, no, this grandma had anxiety and you have anxiety. And do you remember how grandma did this and mm-hmm. this and was so powerful? That's you. It's okay. So that's why it's, you got to tell the whole story, don't you? Do. You do. You have to tell the ups and the downs. Again, with the caveat being always make sure you end with the fight to stay together or the fight to be strong. That yeah. Stay togetherness. Love it. Yep. We're going to take a break. Uh, come back more with Hadge. See, folks, we're soaking it in. You're not just soaking in it. You're soaking it in. She's teaching us about crafting a family narrative. When we come back, she'll give us the how-to, how to build your own family narrative. Powerful stuff, folks. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with this Hadge, Heather Ann Johnson. You're soaking in it. <laughs> Just like Madge from the 50s and 60s, the Palm Olive commercial. You're soaking in it, folks. You're soaking in it. She's got it. She's been smoking a few too many. <laughs> Heather Ann Johnson's joining us from FamilyVolley.com. She's a BYU professor. Teaches us how to like our children and hang out with our children and also create a really cool narrative with our children. I love this topic. It's a good one, isn't it? But see, the narrative is the key. And so anybody in like public relations, they'd say you gotta you gotta stay ahead of the narrative. You gotta you gotta own the narrative. Right. So we gotta own our family story and our context, make it whole, make it real. Talk and make our about kids imp- make them feel like they're a part of it. Absolutely. So as we're doing this, one thing to remember, and then I'd love to talk about what we can do in our own household yeah. to start strengthening this narrative. We want to try and focus on not only our own stories that happen to us as children and you know teenagers and all of that, but it's really cool, too, if we can focus on things that happened to our children before they were born, meaning involving family members that they might not have met or that they're uh, not around a lot. Yeah. Right? So we want to go bigger than us. This is when great-grandparents come into play sure. and, and aunts and uncles and, and these people all kind of rally around, again, just to create this greater body of people to connect us to I love identity. That. And then, by the way, this, summer's kind of a great time to do this. Absolutely. Because well, of funerals and reunions and all of these things. Not more, funerals. Do more people no, die in the summer? I meant like holidays <laughs> where you go celebrate. Like September, we'll have – no, when was it? Weddings. Memorial we Day. We have weddings. Mm-hmm. Kind of the reunions, all that stuff. Absolutely. It's a great place. And, you know, lots of times we shy away from that. But sit down and listen to, you know, great aunt Susie's mm-hmm. story about whoever and, and take that in. You will very quickly start to realize that there are similarities. And that's really cool. That's great. So this narrative, it's bigger than just single answers. For example, I'm always surprised. I ask my students every semester if they know when their parents were married, when their anniversary is. And I would probably say 50% of my class, each classes each semester, can't tell me the day their parents were married. Really? Can't. Yeah. They'll say something like, well, I think it was warm. I think it was in the summer. Or, <laughs> But it's bigger than just being able to say, for example, August 3rd. You want your children to be able to say they were married on August 3rd and the cake showed up late uh-huh. and my dad's tuxedo was blue because it was in the 80s. Right? <laughs> you want them to yeah. know actually the stories around – the narrative around it, not just the exact things. That's great. So here's some questions for yep. you. Tell me. Do you know where your parents met? Uh, prison. In prison. <laughs> my, my parents met in high Easy. school. They lived right up the street from each other. Okay. So you know. How mm-hmm. about your kids? Do they know how you met? 
Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. They, <laughs> over and over. Because we've <laughs> talked about it. Yeah, they should know. But you know what's interesting? Like, I, my daughter, I could see totally knowing that. Right. But some of my kids, my boys, I could be like, they don't I'm care. pretty sure they don't get it. And there's a difference there. And so that's something as a parent we can take into consideration yeah. and think, okay, our daughters, and they usually do, pick up on this. I'm just that way. I remember all those things about our family. My parents have had to tell the stories a little bit differently to my brothers because they don't care yeah, right. quite the same. But maybe the, the right time. Right. Like when one of them is thinking about it, you might try to enroll them in, sure, in the that. engagement idea. Or for example, I know right now I have a brother. He's you know grown, has a family, but he recently has taken up woodworking hmm. and started a woodworking business. And he's fantastic. It's, it's an amazing talent he has. And what's really cool is my grandfather w- did the same thing. Oh, that he is great. He was a great. school teacher. But, and so those stories now he listens to them a lot differently sure. as my parents sure. tell them. He's now passed away. And so now it fits into his narrative That's different great. than it did yeah. a couple years ago. So let's build this narrative. Those are the type of questions, you know, for example, uh, think back. Do you know maybe some jobs your parents had in high school? Yeah. Could no. you answer that? No. no. Could your kids answer that about you? Yeah. They could answer that about for you. Sure. So you can see how you're changing this mm-hmm. as generations go. So if we want to do this in our own home, there's a couple things we want to do. The first thing is we want to have a story for every single situation. I love it. Every single one. So if you want to talk to your kids, teach your kids, it doesn't matter if it's a school situation, a baseball situation, you know, an arts, it doesn't matter. See if there's a story from your past you can use to teach it. I think about our family. My first recollection of learning about being honest comes from a story my dad told me about a Tonka truck. And he was younger. He got it for Christmas. He lost one of the side fences. Oh, boy. And he decided that maybe he'd just take one from the store. Yeah, just go get one more. Because it was right there. there. And all the trucks had him. And he just, and it was a couple of hours before, you know, his parents knew what happened. That's funny. That was lost yesterday. Where is it today? And that's honesty. That story's been told from him to me, from myself to our kids. He tells it to our kids. Well, that's why you've got a story for everything. Right. And it doesn't always have to be your story. And sometimes it's better if, you know, the stealing story might be better to share about grandpa or great grandpa because contextually – that it's going to be less of an impact than thinking mom stole. Right. And it's still very real. You yeah. know, it, it's still happening from someone they love and trust. I and love that. Have the relationship. Uh, we just had a conversation with our daughter about about being brave, about doing something hard. And funny enough, one of my favorite stories comes from my great grandfather, who I was blessed enough to know through even college. He was still alive. And when he was 13, he was sent into the mountains to tend sheep in the winter all alone with nothing but a shotgun, right? <laughs> he killed two bear that winter at 13 years old. Now, when I talk to our daughter about being brave yeah. at a swim meet right. compared to killing bear all alone, <laughs> she right? Yeah, she so, th- so it's better to tell grandpa's story right. than like say, grow up, you freak. <laughs> it's exactly right. Yeah. Or This isn't scary. Just jump in the water yeah. and swim. Come on. Right? right? So we tell those stories and she goes, man – that we're about the same age, and that mm-hmm. is being brave. I can, I can do this. I can well, and those genes shot. are in you. Those are you are that. That's you. You right. just don't think you can. This do that. is part of you. And so these stories have a story That's for cool. everything. Share it. Plus, it's more memorable. It's not harping yeah. on them. It's not preaching. To what if them. the kids are like, "Oh, mom, no more stories." Then you say, "You know what? I got to hear these stories when I, I was young, and yeah. you get to hear them too." Pass those potatoes, and let's keep talking. You and go. you just That's roll it. right yeah. through it. Right? You don't, and you'll know and sense how to deliver mm-hmm. because you know your children. It's cool. But that's the first thing. Have a story for everything. The next one is that we're going to teach our children to tell their own autobiography. 
Now, it's really important that children learn how to talk about past events. It's almost like a gift that comes from practice. It doesn't naturally come to everyone. So we want them to be able to tell their own story so that they can then better understand everyone else's stories when they hear it. One of the best ways to do this is when you're together, even once a day if you can, maybe it's around the dinner table, ask your child to describe a past memorable event in their own lives. Maybe they won the spelling bee in Mm -hmm. third grade and now they're in fifth and they still remember that. Or maybe they remember when they were three and they, I don't know, hit a home run in Little League, whatever it might be. Ask them to tell those stories. Once they've worked through the event itself, ask the five questions of who, what, where, when, and why. That's cool. It's that simple. By asking those five questions, they will then start to dig deeper into what has happened The greatest thing about this is twofold. One, they've learned to describe the past events. But two, it now gives you an opportunity to say, did you know that your great aunt won a spelling bee once? She loved to spell. She was so good because she read so much. And then if if your kids like mine are like, I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know. Right. I always. No, you do. You do know. No, just tell us. It's exactly right. We're not letting you out of this. Right. And again, that's where it's, you know what? I did this when I was a kid. I know. Pass me that those yeah. potatoes again and We're let's hear your this. story. We're going to do this. Right. We got to go. Uh, any other quick advice we got to take? Uh, I think the last one would be, you know, joint story tell. What happens is sometimes we're telling a story and we've got a kid or an adult who pipes in and says, no, you were 12, not right. 13. And we shut them out. But learning to co-develop or co-storytell or co-narrate uh-huh. is really important because we hear all those sites. So instead of thinking that's irritating, yeah. embrace it. And, and, and weave. Learn to kind of weave, weave your stories together. together. Or Ooh. step back and say, hey, you know what? You remember this? Why don't you finish this story and hear so their perspective? Had you did it again. Heather Ann Johnson's her name. Go to her website, familyvolley.com. Check out her book, Family Fun Fridays. Good stuff. The Family Narrative. We'll take a break. Come back. Go visit our family members down at BYU Sports Nation. See what's going on there. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Celebrating Embrace Your Geekness Day. We're going to head down to the capital, the headquarters of Embrace Your Geekness Day. Our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. Spencer, Jerem, are you both there today? Jerem's not here today. Brian Logan stepping in. Brian Logan! Hey, happy Embrace Your Geekness Day. Thank you. I, you know what? Honestly, I can't think of anything less geeky than Back to the Future. That was all the rage, man. <laughs> That's my jam, dude. Hey, 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 hey. Is it real, like... Settle down. Said, 1.21 gigawatts, you man. it's Geek Day? I, did, did I hear that right? Yeah, it's Embrace Your geek, your Geekness Day. Is that a real, like, day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like On the Matt Townsend like calendar, fried chicken it is. Day? Yeah, it's like Fried Chicken Day. That's a great day. <laughs> uh, and then I think that in about a week, it's Embrace Your Geeky Fried Chicken Day. Ooh. Mm. Fried Chicken. It's good I, stuff. How do you do that? Is it just like a geek? No, did you, not, did you not hear that? Uh, this is a true story. Um Kentucky Fried Chicken was testing a mat that you could use because you know how it's hard when you're eating chicken to your fingers are too greasy to like use your cell phone. Right. So now they have a keyboard that could actually sync to your phone. So while you're eating chicken at Kentucky Fried Chicken, you could still use the keyboard to to insert info into your oh phone. Oh my gosh! I don't believe that. No, they they actually they did they beta tested it and it didn't work very well because in the end everyone ended up throwing it away with their 
meal at the end. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't care. If Sad I'd day. be too worried about eating my fried chicken. Then oh, the text. I love that. <laughs> just, you know, just saying. But it's just a day. You know, it's just a day. It's not. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be. Tomorrow we'll have another day. Maybe I should watch. Uh, what's What's Jerem's favorite movie? His movie, the series, Lord of the Rings. Yes. That's, yeah. Maybe I should watch that. Speaking no. of embrace, embrace your geekdom day. Yeah, that, that kind should, of is. That's what I should watch. I, I tried to watch <laughs> it, um, I think, like a year ago or something, earlier this year, and I fell asleep like twice on it. <laughs> See, then, Bri, then Bri, that just that's natural selection. That means you're not a geek. You're just probably a stud. It, I, I just now I use it whenever I have a hard time. You know, some people to go to sleep, will, yeah. will use other methods. I will just turn on Lord of the Rings. Some use sedatives. Some use Lord of the Rings. Yep, exactly. Hmm. <laughs> That's good stuff. Did you guys hear the latest uh, and greatest sad, sad day? You ready for this? Oh boy! A former Arkansas college student is seeking seventy-five thousand dollars in damages from the state for two fingers that were broken during a classroom game of musical chairs. What? Yeah. Robin Ernest, 46, filed a claim with Arkansas Claims Commission in November uh, about seven months after she injured her hand during what was supposed to be a motivation exercise, gone awry, by the way. The, they, they were down to two students in her psychology class vying for one seat when the accident occurred. She argued that the game was unsafe and that the organizer negligently failed to abide by university-recognized musical chair rules. Wow. What in the world? They didn't even know, know. that there were such I know. There, though, there are rules. There are. With a, uh, basically, there's video of the competition that showed Ernest and six classmates competing for three chairs, eventually only three competitors, and one seat remained. With a beverage cozy and bragging rights up for grabs, the contestants jostled for position. Ernest said she was pushed and banged her hand against the back <laughs> of metal chairs, and she instantly felt pain. Oh, it got real. It got crazy. Man, <sighs> violence. See, that's that's the point, I think, of the whole thing. Always follow the universally recognized musical chair rules. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Folks, people can die. Here's the thing. This is you're telling us a true story and it's just it just <laughs> baffles my mind. I know people are messed up, aren't it they? Is, it's ridiculous. It's, it is serious though. I mean, if you're gonna play a game, like don't play musical chairs, man. Mm-mm. There's, you know, there's equipment that's involved. No, people are competitive. You don't have protective gear. Things can get really crazy, man. As you saw, oh, totally. You see, I mean, well, you know, this is important because this is. I, I guess I won't bring it up now, but there was a pin the tail on the ton- on the donkey game that blinded a man. So <laughs> we're not even gonna go there. But let's. You're right. You're so right, Brian. Just. Play by the rules or don't play at all. Exactly. They would have been better off playing like red light, green light. <laughs> That's right. Or Ollie, all, you know, or maybe what they should have just done is somebody should have just somebody should have just stood up and say, whoa, red light or Ollie, Ollie, income free. And then let everybody come in and we'll start again. And then everybody glove up and helmet up. Yeah, that's yep. Mm-hmm. Either, either gear or, or change the game. What yes. are you talking about again? I have no idea. Oh, okay. See how it goes awry. We're right on par then. Hey, uh, are you guys still doing your thing? Um, you still doing your show thing? Considered the- not doing it, but then Brian talked me back into it. You yeah. know what? If I were you, I'd lead with this story, though. Um, I'd lead with it. You know, we'll think about it. Or embrace your geekness day. I'd lead with that. <laughs> maybe, we could, maybe we could just tweet <laughs> That actually I might consider doing. It's a huge day. It's the 13th. 
You played Back to the Future music, though. Yeah. Is that really geeky? Yeah, it is, totally. That it, movie is awesome. No, Spence, it's only my, geeky if you keep quoting it. Well, let's see. What else? Like, you I just knew from? it was how many, however I, many gigawatts. gigawatts? I've seen. One point, put it on gigawatts. I don't think I've seen. There's like three of them, right? Yeah. You haven't seen any of them, Brian? I think I've seen one. You're not American, then. Brian, you're, you're too American. cool, man. I've seen one or two when I was really young. Terrorist. You are remember. a terrorist <laughs> if you have not seen Back to the Future. And I have. Yeah. And I don't eat hot dogs. Brian either. and ISIS, man. Those two. He doesn't eat hot dogs and he hasn't seen Back to the Future. Yep. And he hasn't seen Lord of the Rings. Like, you're un American. Check this out. I've seen Star Wars. I'm a fan of Star Wars. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So Star, Wars, Star Wars brings, I, I feel, all people of all kinds, <laughs> geeks and non-geeks, well, geeks, yeah. athletes, uh-huh. you know, blacks, yeah. whites. I, totally. Yes. Greens. Together. That's yeah. what Star Wars does. That's right. how powerful right. that is. Uh, you can't say that for Lord of the Rings. No. no. I think it makes fun of bald, little bald men. You can't men. say that about Back to the Future? I don't think so, man. I don't think so, dude. What? <laughs> it's like, like... I remember I had this argument one time with a girl. She was like, "What? You like Star Wars? You're a, you're a nerd." And I was like, "Nerd? Hey, every guy likes Star Wars. Yes. If you're a jock. If you're a nerd, whatever. You like Star Wars. If you don't like Star Wars and you're Listen, a guy, you have Star Wars. The mayor, the mayor like in Dale, the mayor in Heeldale, which is where Back to the Future takes place, is is a black man. Okay? Yes. There's. It, are you saying I should watch every black movie? What yes. I'm saying is, <laughs> come on, Brian. When you go back to 1955, like uh-huh. they, they address that issue, and then it shows success and progression and moving forward. <laughs> so, Brian, you need—I'm telling you—you you need to see this. Or I could just watch the documentary of Martin Luther King. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, yeah, you could do that too. Or, or yeah, whatever. <laughs> you guys, oh, yeah. see, we just okay. changed it right there. See, we just yeah. changed the world. Did he tell you what we're doing? On I know show, what are, are you. You are doing your show. What are you going to yes. talk about? What's the most undervalued position on the BYU football team? Undervalued kicker. Interesting that you would say that hmm. because that is an option that was definitely discussed this morning. How about the left guard? How about the right guard or the center? Ooh, right or the guard. nose tackle? How about the right or water boy? What position mm. Brian played? The defensive back. DB. You're either the, you're either the hero or the zero. How yeah. about the? Oh, so you're going to talk about which is which is the least undervalued or most the, undervalued? The most, undervalued most undervalued position on the BYU football team. It's a great question. It's a great okay, question. This comes because of something that happened uh, with one of the nation's top pro college football programs in the country. What they did on their media guide to give some love to some guys that don't get a lot. Oh, great! So I thought, okay, this is really cool. I got the wheels turning. So we're going to discuss that, and then a huge, huge, huge weekend for former BYU Cougars. And their respective levels. And some current. Huh? A gold medal in the World University Games. Wow. Tyler Hawes going off in the NBA yeah, Summer League. He's doing great. Austin Colley, another game, another mm, touchdown in the mm, CFL. Mm. And a top 10 finish on the PGA Tour. You got a busy show, there you go, boys. Man. There you go. And it's Geekness Day. Celebrate it. Embrace Batman it. versus yes. Superman. We watched the trailer today just to go along with that. Gosh, you guys, I love talking to That's you. That's not too geeky, though. No. All right. Well, okay, have a great so. show. Thank you, sir. May the force be with you. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs> Good stuff, man. They've uh, they they just still put together. They get. I mean, I'm surprised because they act like they don't even have a show, and then all of a sudden, bam, 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 bam. They got like 20 questions. Well, as you know, we like to end our show. Helping you see the good in the world, we like to find one of our heroes. We call him Townsend's Heroes. Nicholas Winton is today's candidate. Townsend's Heroes, he's a stockbroker who saved over 600 children during World War II. A humble hero, saved hundreds of Czech children from the World War II atrocities. As a young stockbroker in Prague, 
Nicholas Winton watched as Nazis marched into Czechoslovakia, but then virtually single-handedly, he saved more than 650 Jewish children from almost certain death. During World War II, the British government had a program welcoming unaccompanied Jewish minors, provided that they had a host family. However, this program did not extend to Czechoslovakia. In 1938, Winton went to Czechoslovakia, and after taking registry of thousands of children's names, he returned to England to acquire entry permits and money, as well as to arrange transportation and eventual homes for these Czech children. The bureaucratic process was slow, and to save the children's Children or the kids, Winton covered much of the costs himself. For over 50 years, Winton never told his story until his wife discovered the documents in their attic in 1988 that revealed the story and for the first time allowed the rescued children to know and thank their Savior. In February of this year, in accepting the Honorable Freedom of the City of London Award, Winton made this comment. He said, the world would be a better place if people behaved in an ethical manner with honesty and love rather than causing disputes over religious beliefs. Nicholas Winton died Wednesday, July 1st, 2015 at the age of 106 years old. How cool is that? Nicholas Winton, you are the hero of the day. Holy cow, stepped up, found a problem and went about solving it your way and again, quietly, quietly just went about your life, didn't look for attention. Folks, that's a hero, my friend, and that's what we try to show you on this, uh, on this show. We want you to know that there's good out there, so no matter how hard life seems, there's always going to be somewhere else you can look for some light and for some goodness. We hope you'll come look at the show. We're here Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern time. Join us again tomorrow. Until then, take care and make it a great one.